In old Gothic Europe, they had two burning passions, witch hunting and devil worship. Practice the black arts. They worship the devil. They're all slaves to Count Karnstein, and he is their evil master. Do you know what I want more than anything else? To meet Count Karnstein. <laughs> They look alike. They dress alike. Two identical beauties. But one of them has the very devil in her. For you, all pleasures should be supreme. These are the men they call the Brotherhood. Seek out the devil worshippers by burning them! And this is the sister who is about to enter the devilhood. Look, what do you see? We are the undead, immortal. The devil has sent me twins of evil. Hello, and welcome to Hammer Pub. Uh, I am here tonight uh, with my usual co-hosts, uh, Jinx and Allie. Uh, and my name's Paul, in case you didn't know. Uh, uh, how, how are you two doing this evening? Not as good as that intro. <laughs> All right. That was my intro, everybody. I did it. I did an intro. It was beautiful. I love it. Can we, thank you. Can we insert like, like stock sound effect of like, a, like applause, like yeah. a huge crowd applauding? Yes. You know what? Actually, right now we're going to do it. Everyone hold for audience applause. Okay, good. That was great. That was good. I feel good. I was that made me feel better. For applause. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, how is everyone? How's uh, how's everything been in the last week? I know uh, we were a little late getting the last episode out on time, but there was a very good reason for that. Unfortunately, our editor, uh, gentleman who puts this up for us, his name is Seth. He was uh, he was detained somewhat this weekend. He was working at a big convention up north in Lexington, but uh, he was cool enough to put it up today as we record, which uh, is actually on a Monday. But uh, haven't gotten the chance to listen to it yet. But I got to imagine, as with every chat that we do, it was pretty fantastic. I'd like to say that I'll pat us all on the back here. Yeah. It's probably pretty great. I heard like the first 20 minutes and I thought it sounded really fun. Nice. I liked it. All right. But this week we uh, we are probably going to have an even better chat because we are going to be talking Twins of Evil, which is a super fun movie. Uh, it is the third movie in the Karnstein trilogy and um, might be my favorite. Spoiler alert. Just going to throw that out there. It might be my favorite in the trilogy. I mean, it's going to be better than Lust for a Vampire, so really it just comes yeah. down between that and Vampire yeah. Lovers. Uh, you know, the Vampire Lovers, I, you know, arguably might even be the better movie, but um, I think Twins is just more fun. So, uh, But I'm curious to see what you both think about it once we dive into the conversation proper. But before we do that, what have we seen in the last week? What, is, uh, what has everybody been watching? Allie, in the space of the last week, what have you caught? I feel like, okay, before we dive in, yeah. I feel like there's one movie that we're all going to be talking about this week at length, so we might hold on to that one for a bit. But other than that one that I know you all know, 
Allie, what have you seen? Um, that's horror based. Uh, I don't know if you count it. I have a lot of those. I have a lot. Of, I don't know if it's counting as horror. Um, I saw Summer of Sam by Spike Lee for the first time. Ooh, about okay. The, like Son of Sam murders. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was okay. like, holy shit, that is a well acted fucking movie. Yeah. Like, I love Spike Lee. I love the way he tells stories, but like, holy shit. Although I will say, having now watched uh, Manhunter and just seeing how the actor they got to play David Berkowitz is like the identical twin to a David Berkowitz, <laughs> seeing this guy in this movie, I'm like, poor casting. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> this actor is probably a child, but ugh, they're identical. <laughs> I feel like anything shy of just cloning the actual Berkowitz, you're not going to get any closer than the guy that they got for Manhunter. Like, that's just... It's, like, disturbingly close. Like, they were... I would say past life, but they definitely overlap age-wise. Like, do you think people on set were a little wary of the guy because he looked so much like him? Oh, and it's yeah. not like he just looks like another dude. Like, David Berkowitz has a very distinctive look. So the fact that they found somebody who looked exactly like him, I gotta be, I gotta imagine that was a little unnerving at times. Oh, it, yeah, it must have been so, like, off-putting just to be around and being like, no, you guys look way too much alike. <laughs> yeah, that is, uh, that's a great <clears throat> movie. It's fun to look, like, to be identical looking to a serial killer. <laughs> I remember, what was that? I think it came out in the summer of 99, and it was kind of swept up in, uh, I don't know if a lot of people remember, but 99 was one hell of a year for movies. And uh, yeah. Summer of Sam was like, uh, why it was a summer movie, I have no idea. I think it was just probably by virtue of the fact that it was called Summer of Sam, it was about the summer, but that is not a summer wide release movie at all. And yet, they put it out in wide release in summer. <laughs> and I remember watching it, um, and my local theater, I caught it by myself. Couldn't get any friends to go with me to see this particular movie. And um, it was, it was, it was, I wouldn't say it was packed, but there was a good deal of people in there. And I remember this was the first time that I'd ever watched a movie in a theater where this happened. Where about halfway through, audience members just started getting up and walking out. Like saying, done. Like by the time the movie was over, by everybody, you know, by the time we all made it to the uh, the end credits, mm -hmm. over half of the audience had gotten up and left. And I had never seen that before. It wow. Kind of, it kind of stunned me, especially considering that I fucking love that movie. Like that is, that's also the first time that I ever watched the movie. You know, yeah, I grew up, you know, watching Siskel and Ebert and reading various uh, film reviewers and whatnot. And I remember people constantly especially back in the day when you would see critics blurbs really prominently displayed in every trailer you would see in the 90s and i remember people talking about movies feeling electric it's an electric movie it's electrifying it's this it's that and i had never really felt that watching a movie in a the theater before until i watched summer of sam like i remember walking out feeling shaken by mm -hmm. the thing and like I'd never seen anything quite like it. And that's a movie that, weirdly enough, I haven't really revisited that much over the years. But now that you brought it up, Ali, I kind of want to check it out again. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. Oh, sorry. Sorry, I was just going to fawn over how amazing John Leguizamo and Adrian Brody. Or not Adrian Brody. Oh, my God. Wait, no. Wait. Oh, Adrian Brody, yeah. Adrian Brody. Yeah. Sorry. I'm thinking of Adam Brody in my mind. And I'm like, that's the wrong name. <laughs> that would have been a weird <laughs> film. <laughs> oh, it would have been not great, but oh, they're just, they're such good actors, and like, 
I didn't realize that Jennifer Esposito and like Mira Servino were in it. I'm just like, oh, I love seeing all of you on screen together. It's just so good. Wasn't Leguizamo such a bastard in the film? Such a piece of shit. Oh, yeah, he sucks. And I love um, that he's essentially our de facto lead. Like, that, yeah. that is the guy who's yeah. meant to take us through the movie, and yet he's such an asshole. Like, it's it's unbelievable. Yeah, I, um, so I saw that movie when it came out, too, but the I have a weird history with it. Like, when I first saw it, I really hated it. I thought it was... I was one of those people just, like, completely... And I was also, you know, a kid when I, I mean, a young teenager. So I was like, oh, this is dumb. I, I wanted, I wanted seven. I went into it thinking it would be like seven. Literally. I remember I was like, oh, serial killer. To be fair to you, they pushed it that way. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. And so like I saw it and I was like, well, this is trash. And I never watched it again. And then um, Kino Lorber put out a handful of Spike Lee films on Blu-ray uh, and this was one of them. And I was like, you know, I think it's been long enough and I'm into horror now. And like, it, just, I just had that itch to kind of like give it a second chance. And I watched it, I don't know, maybe like six to eight months ago. And I was like utterly blown away. Like I was like, it went from being this movie that I thought was like kind of bad to like, this is one of my favorite Spike Lee films. Um, I think it is, I think it's a masterpiece. Um, I, I think it's so interesting how he basically makes a movie that is not about, it's not about the serial killer. It's about, it's about the victims that he kills and doesn't kill. Right. Like it's, it's not only about the people he's killing it's about like the fear that he casts over this section of the city and this sort of like overhanging kind of dread that they all feel and start to question and they start to sort of like pick apart their world in a way. And, and it, while in so doing it exposes things about themselves, like, you know, what's important to them, what isn't important to them and what they're willing to risk uh, for, you know, whatever carnal pleasures they're going after. Um, and, you know, in terms of it being a summer movie, while, yeah, I mean, it, it's not going to hold a candle to like big budget summer blockbusters. And, and the idea of putting that movie wide is hilarious to me. Um, but like it does, I, I can totally see why you'd want to watch it during the summer because that movie is like dripping with sweat. <laughs> With how hot, you know, everything feels and how greasy and and just under the beating sun of of everything that's going on. So, you know, I, I, I yeah, I, I think it's I think it's a great movie. I, I love it. I'll ask Allie and Paul both. Uh, how would it rank for you both as far as uh, Spike Lee movies go? Because I got to say, like, it's really high. It might be my favorite. And I know that's probably not cool to say, but. I think it might be the most assured he's ever seemed as a director. I mean, it's definitely top three for me. I would really have to sit down and go over the list again. But, like, I think after seeing that, it's definitely, like, moved right on up. That's awesome. Yeah, it's it's hard for me to to rank his films. One, because he's made so many. And I have, and admittedly, I have not seen them all. True. I haven't seen them either. I've seen... A healthy amount of Spike Lee, but I, I, there's, there's a lot of blind spots that I, I would be embarrassed to admit. But if I was making like a top three or four, it would, it would be up there. I mean, I think, I think I can safely say my favorite is Do the Right Thing. Um, oh yeah, I love that movie. And 
you know, I it's hard for me. I know it's it's not as maybe entertaining, but I just think it's so brilliantly made. Um, probably Malcolm X would be like my second. I love yeah, Malcolm X. I could see that. Um, and have, after, oh, sorry, go ahead. I straight up haven't seen Malcolm X, and I feel like I'm just doing myself and like the world a disservice. <laughs> no, definitely check it out. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful film, and and certainly um, Denzel Washington gives like one of the performances yeah. of his career. Denzel. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, and I, I have a, I really like 25th hour. Um, I like black Klansman a lot. Um, you know, anyway, but, but as summer of Sam would probably, probably go after Malcolm X for me. I, I think it's that good. You know, it's funny that you mentioned 25th hour. That's one of my favorites of his too. And, uh, like part of me wanted to watch it for the 20th anniversary that we just, uh, well, we didn't celebrate, but you know, the, the 20th anniversary of nine 11 that just passed this past mm-hmm. weekend, because I think 25th hour to me, I can't think of any other movie that came out around that time, or at least that's come out about that time has really dealt with what this country felt like yeah. as honestly as that movie, you know, it was either kind of jingoistic and, you know, just really close, like tiptoeing around being propaganda almost, or just kind of looking at that era through, I mean, what was the Robert Pattinson romantic drama that came out and ended with, Oh, by the way, he was in one of the twin towers. when it was oh, yeah. Bye everyone. It's like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's stuff like that, which is just like really, really manipulative. And I think, again, I think 25th hour is the one movie that I can think of. That's just kind of like, this is what this time felt like. This is what the country yeah. felt like at the time. Like it took the temperature, I think, better than any other piece of art did that I've seen anyway. So, uh, yeah, it's a great movie. And it's just it's so emotionally compelling. Like it, the whole the movie just feels like it just moves. <laughs> You're with that character. It feels really visceral. It's really intense emotionally. And it's really thought provoking, which I mean, that's that's why he's such a great director is I, I can't think of many directors that are as thought provoking or, uh, you know, emotionally compelling as, as Spike Lee when he's really on it, you know, I mean, there's certainly misses in his filmography, but on the whole, uh, it's, it's great stuff. His, uh, his old boy remake is on par with the Wicker Man remake as far as being <laughs> one of the most wrong hand, wrong headed, like just straight up terrible sure. remakes of a great film that I've ever seen. And I was rooting that for it. Like I, when you know with that cast with him at the helm uh you know i was like yes let's do this and 20 minutes into i was like no let's not stop it yeah Um, well he he got put in movie jail for that (laughs) he was kind of out of commission for a minute i mean he made movies but i feel like it it really took a few years for him to reclaim um you know status a little bit yeah, but. that was that was something. It was, uh, and especially considering that, you know, I don't know if either of you remember, but around that time, I think not long after the original movie hit uh, DVD here back in the states, like there were there were rumors that Steven Spielberg was going to helm like a big budget adaptation of Old Boy that was going to go back to the original manga and it was going to star Will Smith. And I just remember thinking at the time, like, one, okay, I would watch that movie, but two, oh, yeah. like, I don't know, like, I, look, Spielberg is a fucking master, and I'm not arguing that, but there was something about it where I was like, you know, I don't, 
I don't need to see the Steven Spielberg version of Old Boy. Like he's I don't know that that's a filmmaker who's suited to this material. Maybe he ultimately felt the same because he didn't do it. And I get the feeling that that guy probably gets to do whatever the hell he wants. You know what I mean? So there had to have been a reason why he ultimately didn't do it. But when they announced Spike Lee, I was like, okay, all right. That makes sense to me. Like I could see a Spike Lee old boy. And then I saw the Spike Lee old boy and I was like, whoops, that's, that's, that's my bad. Allie, have you seen 25th hour? I have not. <gasps> Allie, but I'm not good. It's my list. God. Um, can, consider it a must see if you can, because my goodness, my goodness. Paul, how about you? What have you seen this past week? Um, well, if I'm forgoing the, the big one, uh, everything I watched was like for a podcast or was like a rewatch. Um, so I guess I'll just kind of play the hits here. Um, I rewatched Escape Room. Uh, oh, nice. Oh, uh, yeah. We, I <clears throat> yelled you into that. Yeah, yeah. I, it's just a super fun movie. Um, movie. You know, the sequel is coming out, I guess, or is already out. I don't know. It's not, it wasn't available on VOD yet. I was going to VOD the sequel and it wasn't there. So I was like, I guess I'll just watch the first one again. <laughs> and uh, I showed my wife it and she liked it. Um, you know, it's just, it's just a fun, it's just a good time at the movies. It's one of those movies where you're like, oh yeah, movies can just be like really fun and they don't have to be much more than that sometimes. And like, that's what that movie is. Um, so I enjoyed Escape Room. I'm looking forward to the sequel. Uh, I also watched uh, Wrong Turn. From 2003. Yes. Not the remake, the original. I did like the remake. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, Wrong Turn's one of those movies where I feel like there's this weird, I feel like it's a little divisive. Like, it's not one of those movies from the 2000s that everyone just universally loves. Like, I, I hear some people going, ah, eh, it's okay. The second one's better. Um, I really dig Wrong Turn. I think it's really, really fun. Um, I love Joe Lynch's sequel. I don't like it as much as the first one. Um, I think the first one is is, you know, a, a better movie, but I, I really like Wrong Turn 2. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's it's just it's a really great sort of 70s style slasher throwback. Like, it's really mean, like it's super mean. Um, the characters are all generally I mean, it's got like that kind of like pretty teen or well, pretty 20 something cast. Um <laughs> But, like, none of the characters are truly, like, reprehensible people for the most part. They're all, like, pretty likable. Um, you don't really want to see them in this situation. They're not, like, annoying. Probably the closest to that are, like, the first two people who get killed are just basically, like, sexed up. You know, like, they're just like, let's have sex all the time. And that's, like, their whole existence until they die, um, which is fine. Uh, but yeah, I mean the, the makeup effects in that movie are really impressive. The, it's really creepy. It's really scary. Um, really disturbing. Um, I love all the shit in the trees where they're like running around trees at the end. I mean, you never see that in movies. Uh, so yeah, just, I just think wrong turn is like a super good time. Yeah. I love it. I love that movie. Uh, that to me was like the first movie that came out that really started to pull the horror genre away from, uh, like the J horror remakes and um, you know, sort of the, the, the arena that it was in at that point, it really started to pull it more towards the, uh, you know, kind of revisiting a lot of the style and the aesthetics of like seventies horror cinema. You know, there was like wrong turn yeah. and then we had house of a thousand corpses. And by the time the devil's rejects hit, 
you know, like two years later, we were kind of like in a full blown revival of seventies horror uh, cinema. And then we moved on to the eighties and now it feels like we're finally on to the nineties. But no, I, I, I remember watching wrong turn and feeling like, okay, this is modern, but it also feels like nothing I've really seen before because up until that point, I wasn't really familiar with seventies horror cinema outside of like Texas Chainsaw and a couple of the classics like black Christmas and Halloween. And that was the movie that kind of kickstarted my interest in going back and checking out a lot of those movies. Uh, You know, the grittier, the grimier, the more mean spirited, you know, Um, plus it just has a great cast. Like Eliza Dushku, was great in it. Desmond Harrington, I think, is a star that sadly never was, which bums me out. I know. I wish wish he had picked up. That guy deserved to... That should have been the movie that, like, propelled him to knocking down, like... Yeah. A-list productions. Like, he... Like, after that, like, leading, you know, a horror movie, like, that should have gotten him, like, the second lead in a much bigger movie... And then he should have been like headlining films after that. And for the life of me, I don't understand why that didn't happen. I think it's because he's a scary face. Like he's got a mean looking face. <laughs> he does. Like he's he, handsome, but like you just look like every day is the worst day for him. He, he yeah. also looks like he looks like kind of a dick. Like he looks like he's abuse. Like, like if I saw him, like I could just believe like if he was cast as like an abusive boyfriend or something, I would just believe it. He just looks like that. <laughs> Like, um, he just does. Like, like that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh yeah, that guy definitely like yeah does shitty things. He's also really good in the hole. Oh, he's yeah. Um, and so yeah, it's really a shame that um, there is a you movie know Paul, his claim to say... fame. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I just says it's it's a shame that his claim to fame is going to ultimately be like Dokes Part Two on Dexter. <laughs> Yeah, I do oh, like his character on Dexter, though. But I, yeah, um, but Dexter, uh, let's not get started. I Dexter, Dexter, Allie, no, Allie, real bad. Allie, we gotta, and we I, gotta I despise, I despise that he show. He was also in the Neon Demon. He was in the Neon Demon. That is true, he was, and he was a true. dick in that. Like they cast the type, or at least face type, I guess, in that because the moment you see him, you're like, ah, oh, this is not gonna go well. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. But but the flip side of that is, I, I wonder how much of that is simply kind of maybe you're right, Paul. Maybe that's exactly it. Maybe people took a look at him, and even though he played the hero role in Wrong Turn, maybe they were like, "This guy's kind of scary," so we're just gonna we're gonna box him in. He's gonna play dicks from here on out. But I will say that like when you watch Ghost Ship, until that big reveal happens in the final half, like he plays kind of like the nerdy, giggly, goofy guy, you know, that you would never expect yeah. as being the villain throughout. And then uh, Christine Lottie's uh, movie, uh, the one that she directed, My First Mister, like he's completely charming in that. Like he's... That's true. So it's, yeah, it's just a shame that he never got that chance. So Desmond Harrington, if you're listening, and we know you do, um, we, we're we we're still rooting for you all these years later, sir. So. Um <laughs> Have either of you caught Superhost on Shudder? Not yet. No, I haven't yet. So that was that would that would be my non uh, not the other movie choice this week. Uh, I caught it on Shutter. It was one of the two horror movies that I managed to catch this week in between uh, just working and uh, watching episodes of Dark Shadows. And I gotta say, like I well, that's not true. I'm sorry. I watched the found footage movie the other day. Uh, yeah, but I'm not gonna talk about it. Uh, anyway, Superhost. Also kind of found footage at the very beginning, or at least mockumentary. Uh, it's about a young couple 
that have a YouTube show that is struggling when the movie begins. Uh, they're losing subscribers. They're losing, you know, followers and whatnot. Their 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 watches are going down, and so as a result, they're kind of in this position where um, their next show is going to be kind of a make or break it sort of thing as to whether or not their channel is going to continue being viable. Or if they're never getting out of the financial rut that they're in, that they're going to have to keep borrowing money, I think, from like, you know, out of the couple, like, uh, you know, her parents' money and stuff like that. So they're kind of likable. You find out at the very beginning that the guy, I believe their names are Teddy and Claire. Um, but anyway, when the movie begins, they have this show where basically they bounce around from bed and breakfasts and uh, they document their visits. And they ultimately give a rating as to how great the place is and how great the host is, hence the title of their show, Superhost. And uh, what we know as the audience and the characters, or at least Claire doesn't know, is that Teddy is going to use the next show as an opportunity to basically pop the question. And um, they get to their bed and breakfast and they meet the host, who is this uh, really bright, chipper, borderline off putting young woman named Rebecca who has like a really cheery smile and bright eyes. And she is just off enough to make you feel uncomfortable as an audience member. Like she's a little too bright and chipper and the pauses between like <laughs> her responses to when they're speaking to her, it's just a little too long and a little too measured. And she's just a little too, not quite human that, um, Again, as an audience member, you're a little put off, and so are the characters. And this is where the movie gets really interesting. Rather than, um, you know, running the hell away, they have the idea to um, <clears throat> continue documenting their stay, but to focus on Rebecca and specifically how off she is and how potentially mentally ill she might be. And so their idea is to exploit this woman for... Uh, for yucks and to hopefully get more subscribers, more viewers and to make one hell of an episode out of it by essentially shining a spotlight on this woman rather than doing what they typically do. And it puts you in a really weird place as, uh, as an audience member, simply because like by the time that happens, you're invested in them. Like you, you want them to get out of their rut. You want them to have a great show. You want people to start watching it and you want him to pop the question. You want everything to be okay. And because you're invested in that, when they make this really dodgy decision to exploit this woman, you, you're still kind of along for the ride, but you don't really, it's hard to like them much after that. And, uh, I don't want to get too much into the twists and turns as to whether or not Rebecca is, I mean, obviously this is a horror movie. Otherwise I wouldn't be talking about it on here, but the nature of the threat in the story is not necessarily what you think it is. And the movie does this really kind of brilliant sleight of hand uh, a little over halfway through. There's kind of a one-two punch that's amazing. And uh, and then from that point on, the movie becomes really intense. And um, it's, it's – it's, I don't want to get too spoilery, but it is something. By the time it reaches the end credits, I guarantee the movie will have made an impact on you. And other than that, it's just it's very well made and uh, great, great performances from everybody involved. I think it's uh, look them up here. Sarah Canning plays Claire. Osric Chow, who is from Supernatural for fans out there, plays Teddy and Gracie Gillum plays Rebecca. And she is absolutely incredible in the role as 
somebody you don't know if you should feel for or fear or uh, you're not quite sure what until, well, you ultimately find out. Uh, and Barbara Crampton pops up for about 10 minutes. And as Barbara Crampton usually is, she is amazing in it. That sounds that, awesome. Does this mean we can talk about the other film? I th- is that it? Is that all we have? We just been waiting to talk about that one movie that I mean, everyone on Twitter has been talking about I this could, week. Yeah, I could talk about the guest. I watched the guest. <laughs> I no, feel like guest everyone already talked like about that. Blu-ray release. It's getting a whole like little boxy set. I know, and I I ordered that too, but I I had to show it to people that had never seen it, and they all loved it. Because it's a good movie. You can't hate on that. It is a great movie. And I still say that, um, and this is not even my idea. Like, this is back in, like, the old IMDb, yeah, IMDb message board days, I believe, where somebody said that, uh, you know, the perfect double feature would be the guest and Iron Giant. And damn it if they aren't right. Like, yeah, sure, one's an animated kids film and one is, uh, you know, <laughs> a hard R-rated action horror thriller, but both movies they're like kind of flip sides of the same coin it's uh you know reduced down to like a very simple theme the idea is well what if a gun had a soul you know what if a a a weapon you know had a conscience you know and uh what i love about it is that iron giant is all about taking a machine and making him human and the guest is all about you know well here we have unfortunately the fallout of what happened when Somebody took a human being and stripped him down to, well, spare parts and just made him a weapon. And I don't know how you both feel. Like, I've had conversations that have gone either way when it comes to Dan Stevens' character in that movie. But do you feel like David, the guy who plays in that, do you think that there was a genuinely decent human being in there who just kind of had a monster on his back? Or do you think the entire thing was a complete lie? No, I think there's still a little bit of humanity left in him. Because it wasn't like he was born into this super soldier thing. Like, he, at some point in his life, was a good kid. I want to believe that because he is so charming and he is so likable. But there is this one moment in the movie. Like, the, the facade that he puts on to sort of ingratiate himself in that family is that of, like, this charming southern boy you know and uh Mm -hmm. there is that moment when uh michael monroe's character overhears him having a conversation outside and he has a completely different accent and so it's like okay was he that guy was he always that guy and then they they honed him into this thing and he's been fighting against it until he ultimately loses or is he just a fucking psychopath and that's all there is to him and he just knows how to manipulate people? And I love that the movie never quite answers that question with any certainty, you know? Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know that there's a direct sort of answer to it. The way I saw it was, I don't know who he was before his programming. I have no I have no idea. I don't even think the movie really lets me in on that. Um, what I do think is, I don't think he went to that house with the intention of, killing any of the family i think he went there to legitimately help i think he made a promise to somebody that he on some weird level was able to still care about i think that was almost like a glitch in their programming was that like they were made into these super soldiers i guess spoilers for the guest anyone listening uh they were made into super soldiers old (laughs) yeah well i just had a house of people who hadn't seen it so um 
they were made into super soldiers and I almost kind of took it as like the thing they didn't anticipate was like part of their programming was to protect themselves and the program. Maybe that also meant protecting the other soldiers in the program in a way. Um, and so when one of them was like dying and said, Hey, please go take care of my family. He took that as like a program directive. So I, I see what he's doing in the movie as like him believing this is something he has to do. He does not have a choice. I don't think he wants to particularly involve himself in that world, but he does it because that was like a promise he made and he feels he needs to accomplish that before he leaves and goes and does his next thing, which he's planning all the while, right? The phone call she overhears, um, you know, suggests to me that he wants nothing more than to leave and go start this next process to kind of change his identity and, and get away. He, he knows that he's endangering himself by being there, but he feels this responsibility. And in so doing inadvertently is able to make a connection, particularly with, with the boy, um, so that in the end, when the kid actually learns some things from him, even though it's it's ultimately destructive to him, or or it kind of is, um, he sees it as, he starts to understand like, oh, I, I can sort of care about people in a way. Because the end of the movie, you know, and it leaves you hanging a bit. Him walking away at the end and being okay. Um, if if he's just going to be his sort of Terminator Michael Myersy self, he would he would then kill the two kids or come back for them. Um, versus, does he walk away? And that's sort of the question I have: is is he going to leave them be, or is he going to go after them? And I really like that that the movie doesn't sort of answer that that question but yeah that that's kind of how i see the movie yeah i could see that i i remember somebody saying once and i i thought it was a very good point that he's a guy that because of that pro programming that you mentioned like he he's beholden to any order that he takes um and he it is it is basically his job to serve a purpose, you know, at that moment, whatever it may be. So like you said, you know, he, he made a promise to a fallen soldier. And so he was going to follow through on that, you know, and then once he's there, each of them have something that they kind of need from him. And so he just fulfills that, you know, whatever that need is at that moment, even when, um, you know, the one friend, you know, the, the, the sort of brief sex scene that we get where they're in the bedroom, he's, he's a machine that is shut off. He's laying in bed and she's on top of him and nothing is happening. He's just letting it happen until she says, it seems like you're not really that into this. And as soon as he realizes like, Oh, I have a function to serve here. Then immediately he snaps too, you know, uh, which I thought was really interesting. So, but yeah, yeah. Ultimately, unfortunately it's, it's, it's the programming that comes first above anything, you know, uh, because once that line is crossed, he does really, really horrible shit <laughs> to people that you thought that at a certain point he had come to care about. And I'm still not convinced that he didn't, but um, I don't know. I, I, I love that movie. I really do. I, I just wish that we had gotten uh, I don't know that the movie was ever built to be a franchise starter, but I wish we had gotten a sequel or two. I would have been fine with that. Oh yeah, for yeah. sure. Allie. Yes. Do you want to tell us a bit about malignant? Oh my God. What can we say about Malignant without giving away 
the like big part of the movie. Ah, uh, that's a great. Okay, I will say this then: the movie is only at the time we record this. What three, four days old? By the time this goes up, it will be a week old. So we are going to avoid all spoilers, as we hope all of our listeners have before they manage to watch the movie. But nevertheless. In the course of the conversation, if you're an intuitive listener, there is the chance that something might get spoiled, so tread carefully if you have not seen the movie yet. Yeah, this film really feels like like the studios were like, James Wan, here's some money, do whatever you want, and he was like, fucking right. (laughs) (laughs) Like, the first, not even a third, like over a third of the movie is kind of like, you know, a cheesy kind of 80s horror film where you're like, okay, this is good. And then all of a sudden it's like, uh, oh, wait. Oh, wait, oh, my God. Okay, what? What is happening? What? 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 (laughs) I I will ask, did either of you, I managed to guess the reveal maybe three minutes before it happened. But the realization still hit me as hard as if I hadn't realized it, if that makes any sense. Like, I was literally in the middle of the scene, and I was like, no, no, there's no way they're doing that. And then they did that. And I was like, this is the craziest shit I've seen. (laughs) Good. Yeah, I... Uh, Paul, what did you? Th- I, I I feel okay. Um, we've all talked about this, so we all know what we think about it. Paul, could you tell listeners out there what you thought of it too? What I thought of it, uh, yeah. So I watched this movie. So I watched The Guest with people, and I got drunk watching The Guest. And then uh, my wife's cousin, uh, she, uh, who who I love to call out, she's a huge horror fan, and she is a pastor uh, at a church. And so I always think it's really funny that she's like really into weird horror movies because I always feel like, you know, that's not the kind of person I would think would would watch them. Um, And she loves and she loves like really messed up stuff, too. So like she was staying over and we always whenever she stays over, we like stay up late and watch a horror movie. And we try to pick like weird, obscure stuff. But she was there on Friday. and was like, hey, you know, this new James Wan movie came out. Do you want to watch that? And she was like, yeah. So we popped it on when I was like five or six beers deep already so i went into that movie like pretty good in terms of uh being in a drunken stupor and uh it played very well to the drunk mind um i loved it um and weirdly you know you ask if i guessed it with i would say and i'll admit we were not like we were kind of and uh, normally if i was in a theater i never would have done this but we kind of did like a little bit of a running commentary but in a good way you know, like when you're with someone, even though it's the first time you're watching a movie, it's like sort of okay to talk if you're both on the same page with it. And you're just yeah. like, you're not like talking, but you're kind of like, oh, shit, what the fuck? You know, that kind of stuff. And we were doing that. And within like five, no, pretty quickly, within the first like 15 minutes, we kind of figured out the general thrust of where it was going. The one thing I didn't figure out was that it was, uh, gosh, this is hard. Yep. Um, I figured out <laughs> most of it, but not all of it. But that's what I <laughs> um, like. I kind of knew what it was because the writing's on the wall. Um, it, what I loved about the movie, it wears its influences on its sleeve. Um, this has been talked a lot about, um, but I actually think that's really great. Um, it's a gorgeous film. It's really stylish. 
Um, it's gory as hell. I, I love like the weapon that the killer crafts. Um, I love the atmosphere of it all. I loved when things go batshit. Um, the movie kicks into high gear and just becomes like one of the most entertaining things I've ever seen. Um, I, I liked everything and I like I, all the things that it was referencing are movies that don't often get a lot of attention. You know, much has been made of calling it giallo. Like there's this whole like thing now where it was like, it's not giallo. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's influences definitely derive from giallo. It derives from lots of things. Um, That's the but thing he like, said at the very beginning. Like, yeah, he said, this is well, my giallo, version like, for sure. of a giallo. And it's like the killer, the killer crafting its his his or her weapon um, is very giallo and the weapon itself is very giallo and like the stylish way it's shown. Like there's there's tons of like small sort of subtle things. Um, and it's funny to use the word subtle when you're talking about malignant in any capacity. <laughs> um, but there are lots of little things that kind of reference that particular subgenre. And then it's also referencing just 80 slashers and 90s stuff. And and it's it's all over the map. Like it's it's just him sort of vomiting up all of the things he loves about the horror genre um, and making it as accessible as something like that can be. You know, it's like for as bizarre of a movie it is, it's like very watchable, I think, to the, you know, average person, as opposed to being this like really niche. Like I could totally see like Hen and Lauder writing a movie like this, but his version would be like way less accessible. And he would he would have like maybe a 50th of the budget. <laughs> oh yeah no of course it would be cheap it looked cheap as hell everyone would be so sweaty um and it would just you would just feel dirty watching it whereas like when you watch this movie yeah the budget's on display it looks gorgeous it's incredibly sleek um and and i appreciate the fact that Juan cashed in his blank check movie as like a gift to horror fans full well knowing the studios were going to be pissed at him later like looking <laughs> like, at you was never sam raimi well, also, never like, gonna make money. He only made like 15 mil this yeah. week. He did not do well. Oh no. And it and it wasn't going to, you know, like pandemic or no pandemic. And it's almost like better that it came out during the pandemic because then he could kind of be like, ah, oh, but it went on HBO Max at the same time. Ah, oh, you can't really tell. You know, it's like I almost feel like that's to his benefit. <laughs> you know, I wonder how much part of it actually before I get to that, I'll ask Allie, what were your thoughts when the big reveal finally happened? You kind of, okay, well, I mean, on title alone, you kind of know something along those lines are going to happen. But, like, yeah, I had a, I don't know how to say it without, like, spoiling everything. <laughs> it's so hard. <laughs> yeah, when you start talking about it, you're like, how do I talk about it? How do this? I talk? <laughs> I thought it was going to be something similar, but when they reveal it, I'm like, whew, that is not what I was picturing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, it's also I have to shout out to the fact that like it's in the it's in like pictures so we can talk about but the murder weapon is probably one of the coolest ones I've seen yes. in like oh my god yeah. I'm I'm ready for like trick or treat studios to start putting out like replicas of that yeah for Halloween. oh yeah yeah we'll um, have to talk off mic by the way <laughs> we'll have to circle back to this 
so we can actually like say the things we want to say because i'm curious about a couple of things from your guys's perspective but well you know what what we need to do when the movie finally hits blu-ray by that point listeners out there you've been forewarned like if you haven't seen it by that point tough because when we all revisit it we're going to be talking about it at length i'm sure during the beginning of one of these casts oh yeah um i absolutely adored it i loved it from the moment the film opens in the uh the sort of hospital hallway the performances and how heightened they are and the music and just the gore like everything he tells you exactly what the movie is going to be like you know he talked about the giallo influence like damn it I, sure, part of that's the lighting, part of that's the weapon, the nature of the killer with the black leather gloves and whatnot. You know, the 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 sort of, uh, you know, the mystery that drives the story is kind of like, you know, not quite Edgar Wallace, but, you know, it's, it's it, you feel it in there a little bit. Um, but just down to the performances, all of the performance, I, well, I take that back, not all of the performances. I would say the lead performance by Annabelle Wallace and then a lot of the supporting characters seem to have tapped into that heightened type of performance that you get with certain 70s Italian horror movies that have been dubbed by other actors. And what's amazing is, is to me, they managed to nail that without being dubbed. I would love to see a version of Malignant that is fully dubbed. Uh, They could even use the same actors. I wouldn't care. I just want to see that, you know? Um, But the fact that he tells you what those performances right up top in the first two minutes of the movie, exactly what you're going to expect, you know, or what you should expect, rather. I just, I adored. And then I was grinning ear to ear like an idiot for the rest of the movie. I got to imagine, like somebody said, the cinema score rating was pretty low for the movie. I hate to say it like this is, this is not meant to sound like I'm a snob. But I don't think either of you would argue with me when I say that I think a lot of mainstream viewers are not going to they're not going to have a point of reference for what he's doing with this movie. So I imagine a lot of people seeing those performances and being like, oh, they're terrible. You know what they're doing is awful, as opposed to immediately getting kind of what he's doing and what he's referencing and being like, oh, this is fucking cool. You know, it's kind of like when Grindhouse was released back in 2007. I remember sitting in an audience and I just know about half of them were like why are there so many scratches on the screen? Why, <laughs> why, why is the frame? Why is it misframing? What the fuck is going on here? You know? Um, yeah. yeah. So no, I, I had an absolute blast with it. I thought the twist was amazing. I thought the nature of the killer was fantastic. I've never seen anything like that. Not only does Juan present you with a villain that you've never seen before in a movie, but then he just rings every possible ounce of coolness out of that character by saying like, well, now that I have this character, what am I going to do with him? Well, I'm going to craft a set piece that you wouldn't expect to see until like the third movie in the franchise, because it wouldn't be until that point that anybody would think like, Hey, I really wish we could see this character that we've never seen before in action. You know, instead he's just like, you know what? I'm going to craft a oneer, like a big five minute set piece with him just laying waste to a bunch of characters at once in this massive space. And it's just about the coolest sequence I've seen in a horror movie this year. So cool. Like the fight choreography for that whole scene alone is like, it must've been just the coolest thing to design, but also to just be a part of. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Plus no, I mean, not getting too spoilery, but there, there. Okay, there is a big action set piece with the villain who wields a big, heavy blade of sorts. We'll say uh, because that's the thing. Even the nature of the weapon is kind of a spoiler, which is kind of great. Yeah. Um, 
Because you want to know what it is, but you're like, hmm, but then you're going to know what it is. <laughs> exactly. Yes, exactly. Um, but no, there's there's a scene that's one take with loads of stunts, loads of gore and deaths that the camera never cuts away from. And I mean, you know, you have the character leap in the frame, grab a guy by his arm, cut his arm off, and as the blood is spraying around, discards it and leaps over desks, dodges gunfire, like, you know, oh, yeah. cuts throats and does all of it. And here's the thing, and I can't say, I don't want to say this part, but there is a nature to the physical performance that's being given that I'm sure is being realized with wires and CG to some extent, but also practically that is just, that makes the entire thing seem almost like an impossibility to film or even conceive really. Um, And I couldn't help but like, I mean, it's, it's applause worthy by the time you get to the end of it. It's just absolutely incredible. Um, yeah, and the whole movie, like, it's even, even for as heightened as it is, it does have some genuine emotion in it. You know, I, I, the dialogue gets a little soap opera at times, and yet it still manages to tug at the heartstrings at the same time, which is one hell of a magic trick, I think. Um, but I just, overall, I, fuck, I loved it. I really did. I saw, uh, I think it was AJ on Twitter today, said something like, look, I don't care what they called or if it, it will even exist, but... I will always think of the sequel as malignant second opinion. And I'm like, damn it. I want that movie now, you know, like give me a franchise. Uh, I don't know how you would do it, but, uh, but I want to see it. I want to see it. Yeah. I think you could do, I mean, with a movie that that shit insane, like you could definitely do a sequel because you could just do some other insane thing that, you you know, like you just keep it going. Give, give me the don't breathe too version of a sequel where it's like you know what let's let's take the villain who by the way i i can spoil this the the villain's name is gabriel uh which i'm sure everyone out there has seen in the uh the trailers give me a sequel where gabriel is now forced into a position where he's kind of a protagonist i want to see that movie you know uh i just want to see that character again i want to see people dressed up as gabriel at halloween I want to. Yeah. I want a Gabriel action figure. Uh, give me a Gabriel comic book, T-shirt, whatever the hell. Lunch I'm pay. Sure all that. Damn it. All I'm that sure. will happen. Yeah. Go to a convention. You're definitely going to see that cosplayed. But I would think it would be interesting to see a prequel to this, like how this all began and the whole thing in the the place and the girl and you know I can't say anything. I am so sorry. Place and the <laughs> there, girl. There is okay. So yeah, without getting too much in the spoilers, it is hard. You're right. Um. And listeners out there, I did warn you about being maybe too intuitive. If you want to skip ahead like 30 seconds, go ahead. But there, okay, they explain Gabriel away by about 85% in the movie. Like when, when you get to the point with the big reveal, it's like, oh, that's, that's Gabriel. Okay, all right, I got it. But beyond that, there is still kind of a weird supernatural aspect to him. That the movie never really delves into. So, Ali, I think you're right. Like, if they did a prequel, you could almost delve into how he came to be in the first place and what his powers are, the nature of them. Like, I would be very curious to see that. Just give me more of this character. I don't care if it only made $15 million at the box office. Like, do a direct-to-video series with Juan producing, giving new filmmakers a chance to take a whack at the characters. Give me anything set in this world. Damn it. Like I, I think we need it. I think we deserve it. (laughs) 
I want more. Uh, I will say one thing that uh, and I always mention Twitter, but uh, it's because it's what bugs me sometimes. I don't like talking about it because it's therapy. Um, one thing I saw on Twitter, like this utter <sighs> jaw dropper of a take. And there were plenty of takes on this movie this past week. And if you were paying attention, um, most of it revolving around whether or not James Wan knows what he's talking about when he calls it a jala, which he does. Damn it. Fucking hell. He does. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I'm uh, pretty sure he knows like, what he's talking about. I, yeah. I think most of those takes were aimed at like reviewers were like low, low blows at like people writing reviews. It's like, no, that reviewer called it a jalo. They don't know what they're, you know, that whole like gatekeeping thing when yeah. it comes like, well, you can't review horror movies because you don't know what this is. So well, I just ignored most of it. As well, you should. And I wish I could, but I don't. <laughs> uh, Eve, almost as well. No, I would say even worse than that. Rather, um, I've never seen anybody just both barrels with this type of take. Generally, it's hinted at that people feel this way, and it's worth laughing at after. Um, but I saw somebody talking about the movie, and it was somebody that I follow. I can't remember exactly, and I'm going to be paraphrasing. But I saw somebody in their mentions say something like oh, are we just going to give Juan a pass for making a movie with abortion and mental illness in it? Um. Oh. Do you not know what an abortion is? <laughs> well, <laughs> the, the is thing is... completely different. This is like an issue. <laughs> so I stared at that comment for a bit, and then I was like, you know what? <laughs> not doing anything for the next 10 minutes. Uh, let, let me go ahead and click on this uh, this person's profile and see what else they've written. And sure enough, it's like, oh, it's really funny how everybody in the horror community can can go around canceling people. But, you know, when it comes to their favorites, they won't say anything. And here we have James Wan dealing with themes of abortion and mental illness and nobody's calling him out on it. And again, I stared at that tweet in complete silence until finally I heard this high pitched whine that I realized was coming from me. It sounded something like, what the fuck is he talking about? Like, is he, is, does he believe this person that it's a bad thing to even deal with these themes and to talk about them in films and art? Have we gotten to the point like, has his outrage telephoned its way down to people thinking that it's a bad thing to even discuss certain subjects? And I feel like in this case, that person felt that, that that's absolutely that's absolutely correct, that people should have been calling out Juan and canceling him for even putting these ideas yeah, into the script. And I'm like, what the fuck? Is this where we're at? And not, and by we, I mean, is this where some people are at? I mean, yeah, the world's a shithole right now. So it doesn't <laughs> surprise me. But also, like, so much horror is based around mental illness. Like, you can't be like, oh, you're canceled. It's like, no, considering majority of the world suffers from mental illness. Like, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, that's that's just someone yeah. wanting to have an issue to pursue. I. I think, Jinx, you need, like, a pirate radio station a la uh, Christian Slater's character in Pump Up the Volume, where all you do is, like, tear apart bad takes from Twitter every night. But can you? I would pay for that. I'm being serious. Hang hang on to your hat. Hang on to your hat. 
I already yeah, have right. one. Why, why have you shared it with us? I have every week. That's what this is. This uh, is I. There is, is a not, good. This is this is not a pirate radio station. I want I want one where like the F, the FCC is like tracking you down, and you have to like steal a motorcycle and drive around town, and then you could like inspire kids, you know, to like go pursue their dreams right before you get you carted know, off to jail. It's presumably, funny you mentioned that. It's funny you mentioned Part- that, and I, I I would I would give anything to look like uh, late nineties Christian Slater, except eat right and exercise, but. The thing is, is like, I know you're joking, but there is, and Paul, you and I have talked about this at length before, Allie, before you became a part of the podcast, so I'll, I'll deal you in here at the table too. The reason I do mention that stuff, stuff like that sometimes is, is because it actually does on a certain level bug me that there is maybe a generation coming up, like a generation period, but if we want to keep it to the community, like a generation of horror Twitter or film Twitter that's going to be impressionable and that's that we'll see takes like that. Maybe I'm not giving them enough credit to see past the bullshit, but it concerns me that a younger generation might see takes like that and think to themselves like, Oh, that's right. That's normal. That's what we should be doing. That's what we should be calling out. Like this is, this is where we're at now, you know, like that disturbs me more than a little, maybe it shouldn't, but it does. Well, because that take is fucking nonsense. It is nonsense. We just have to have faith that people will see through the nonsense. Here's hoping. I don't yeah. have anyone in the human race anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Not even us. Not even. Well, it <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but all right. But I will say overall, yes, thumbs up all around. Malignant is one of the most fun times you can have watching a horror movie this year, I think. Yep, I agree. Rock on. All right. Before we dive into some evil twins, uh, does anybody have anything else to uh, to talk about? Anything they've seen recently they want to throw out there before we uh, we move on? Um, nothing. No. Not a, no. Nothing. No. Nothing. We're nothing. good. I watch Grave Encounters. That's that's cool. That's fun. Yeah. yeah it's fun. Kind of threw that out at the end, so I feel like you don't have a lot to say about it. No, I don't. I don't. Kind of that you watched another movie. You know, honestly, I will say this about Grave Encounters. It's on Shudder along with the sequel. I'd always heard that the first movie was so-so and the sequel is great. I and don't... after after having watched the first movie, I feel like that sequel had better be great. Um, because I, I just, I don't know. I was hoping, uh, I'd, I'd kind of, in my mind, I'd always conflated the Hell House franchise with the Grave Encounters movies because they're both like, you know, limited location, found footage, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I watched all three Hell House movies last summer and just fucking fell in love with that series, especially the first one, I think, is maybe one of the scariest horror movies I've seen in ages. And so I really wanted that to be the case with Grave Encounters, and it just was not. But um, but still, I'm going to I'm going to give the sequel a shot at some point. I don't know. I- I remember Grave Encounters because it was one of the eight. Do you remember the eight films to die for? The was After that Dark part of that? I didn't realize that was yes, part of that series. It was. It was. It oh, was. It That's how I saw it. Because I bought, when those movies originally came out, you could get like all eight of them on DVD for like a yep. package price. I so that. I just bought, I bought all eight of them. And that was, that was one of them. So I have seen it. It's been a very long time. 
And I remember it being like fine, nothing yeah. special. I will say about the eight films to die for, uh, the first two of those that hit theaters, um, it didn't hit my theater, the one that I was working at, but it hit uh, two different ones, like within a stone's throw of the place that I worked at. And so I was able to watch as many of them as I possibly could. And I mean, there were some gems in there. Uh, Jim Mickles' first movie um, was pretty good. Was it Mulholland Street, I think? Um, which was pretty interesting. Um, there was uh, The Grave Dancers, which I thought was a lot of fun, but there was one that was directed by, I believe, Nacho Cerda, um, called The Abandoned, that was just fucking superb. Like, one of the best movies, horror otherwise, uh, of the aughts to me. Mm. Um, and they actually put that movie out in limited release about two months later uh, by itself. And it's, oh my God, if neither of you have ever seen it, it is well worth seeking out. It is a fucking stunner of a film. Um yeah. But yeah, no, such a great film. But anyway, we are about an hour in. I think we should probably go ahead and kick up this commentary. What say you all? Sounds good. Yeah. All right. Now, I remember buying Twins of Evil on an old Synapse of Blu-ray. Unfortunately, that's in storage. And, uh, you know, Shudder is playing it. So I'm just going to shutter it up here. But uh, folks out there, whether you're watching on VHS, DVD, Blu-ray, or streaming, let's all get to the very first frame of the movie. And uh, as I'm watching it on Shudder, you have to get through a, uh, a Studio Global Entertainment logo, ITV. Just gonna just gonna let that pass here. Okay, and the very first frame of the movie, it's gonna fade in on uh, big beefy Chuck Barris banging his damn gong. Oh, you you wait. Why is it is my DVD? Oh, that's why. Okay, sorry. My okay. player like wasn't on, and that's why it wasn't showing up. And I'm like, why is everything breaking? <laughs> yep, and I how, how I will be. How are we watching oh. this? So, Allie, you're doing the I Synapse Blu-ray? Synapse DVD. DVD, okay. I am doing Shutter. Paul, how about you? Uh, I have the Synapse Blu-ray. However, I'm going to be watching the the brand new imprint Blu-ray of Twins of Evil that just came out in their new box set. You fancy son of a gun. You... Yeah. Why aren't you... <laughs> This is the thing. It's got it's got two new commentaries and the director's cut of the Flesh and the Fury. Oh, nice! I need to. Uh, reminds me, I think I need to pick up. Is it uh, is it imprint that put out the Straight Story, the David Lynch movie recently? Uh, yes, I think they did. I need to hop on that. Uh, yeah. I will say, I, I from the looks of it, I really dug what they did with uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Hard Eight. That was the the one holdout out of Anderson's filmography that hadn't been on blue yet. And finally they put it out. So, um, and, uh, it was announced the trailer for his new movie played at, uh, in 35 millimeter somewhere this past weekend. And, uh, you know, they're, they're not showing us as plebs out here, the trailer, which, uh, I know kind of, I'm excited though. It sounds great. I can't wait. Uh, I, I love the uh, title too, you know, but they're going to make us wait like three weeks, like they did with the matrix trailer. And, Oh, with the Matrix trailer. I had all the feels, all the emotions. Oh, my God. I I was just confused. (laughs) I love it. But I'm also not, like, a huge... I don't want to be a downer. I'm not a big Matrix person. So I'll watch it. I'm I'm looking forward to it. But I I don't have the same, like, uh, uh, fervor, I think, that other people have for it. That's fair. 
Um, so in Toronto right now, I don't know if you guys know of this little film festival called the Toronto International Film Festival. <laughs> I've heard of it. I've heard of it. Like, we may have heard a thing or two, but I'm currently not going to it because I'm like, I'm not paying like 40 bucks for a ticket. But everyone I know who's going, all they're posting about is how amazing Dune is, and it's killing me. <laughs> oh, how yeah. amazing that Titan movie is, the new... Um, the oh, yeah. Movie. I want to see that so bad. And I am like, ah, oh, I hate all of you because all I want to talk about is these films, but I have to watch them first. Like, I know they're going to be in theaters at some point. I'll get access to them, but, like, ah. Uh. I know. Yeah. I want to see them both, too. Uh, Dune, especially, like, I just... I can't wait. Speaking of Lynch, I picked up the Arrow Blu-ray and I can't wait to dive into that again because that's one of those movies that like everyone, it's it's kind of understood that it's a flawed masterpiece, heavy on the flawed. And to me, I'm like, I really dig it. I think it's a really cool movie. I don't know why people hate it. But I'm a sucker for Lynch anyway, so it doesn't matter. I am too. I love him. <laughs> All right, so we should be yeah. to the first frame of the movie. Listeners out there, go ahead and get ready to sync with us here in five, four, three, two, one, and play. Yeah. All right, so, so we're gonna be uh, we're gonna be talking twins of evil, and mm-hmm. um, what is it? What is it with uh, what is it with horror and twins? You know, always being evil. You know, you got you got vampires, you got ghosts, you got film directors. Like it's you know, it's because when like... aren't evil, they're like super boring. Like, congrats, you look like someone else. <laughs> this is the third film in the Karnstein trilogy, following up the very good The Vampire Lovers and the very movie Lust for a Vampire. And this one, I think, is uh, spoiler alert, maybe my favorite in the trilogy. Yeah, this is this is hands down my favorite. Yes. <laughs> like it's Good. not even I, I wouldn't even say it's close. <laughs> like I like I like the vampire lovers and everything, but like this is so much better. This is I don't know. Leaps and bounds better. I'm also yeah. not the biggest fan of the first two movies, so I'm like, nah, this is good. <laughs> This well, to me has like all of the aesthetic pleasures of like lust for a vampire. Like, and in that commentary, I mentioned how much I loved the look and the feel and the tone and everything that screamed like hammer, you know, to maybe somebody who had never seen a hammer film before, you know. And this one gets all of that, but it also has, I mean, it's just, it's a better story, it's better acted, but it has a depth to it that it, neither of the previous movies had, I don't think. Yeah, it's. Man, well, one, the this movie is gorgeous. It yeah. is gorgeous to look at. I mean, I, hell, I would put it up there with, like, some of Fisher's best stuff. Like, the, like I'd put it up there with Brides in some ways Brides in terms of how it looks. Like, it is so, especially, and we'll get to it, but my God, the finale. Like, <laughs> almost every frame is, like, the most gorgeous, lush, colorful, interesting thing they've done since the early 60s. Um, I was I was utterly blown away by the look of this of this film and the and the score as well is is just so moving like this opening is great. Yeah, and the way it's like the cutting the way we cut halfway into Cushing's monologue, you know, and then we pull back from the woman about to be sadly burned to death. And then, you know, he's still in the middle of the monologue, but, you know, we've switched. Look, it's just little touches like that are so smart from the director, which who we can talk about here in a minute. But. Yeah, Paul, I agree with you. I, I I think it's one of their very best. Like beauty wise, 
I think hands down, this is their best looking seventies film. And as far as hammer filmography overall, I agree with you. I would, I would put it on a shelf right next to brides of Dracula as far as best looking. It's just, it's stunning. And Allie, this was okay. Paul, this was the first time viewing for you, Allie, you as well. Like, did you, did either of you have any sort of expectations for what this movie was going to be, you know, uh, before you went into it and how, <laughs> yeah, how did I'm, you feel about the movie like 10 or 20 minutes in when you realized that this was maybe going to be a better film than the prior Karnstein movie? Yeah, I mean, just from everything I heard of it being like in this trilogy of films and then also it's starring two twin Playboy bunnies, I'm like, oh, I see what they're going to do here. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I, I assumed it would be trashy. Yeah. <laughs> um, I- a lot of boobs and a lot of ladies kissing and it's going yeah. you know, to be which weirdly is it not restrained it's restrained from what I thought it was going to be yeah I mean it's it it really 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 likes cleavage that's a very you know prominent thing in the film but all things considered it is it is fairly uh, restrained compared to what I expected yeah, and we should note that the titular twins are played by Mary and Madeline Collinson. Uh, both were, uh, Allie, as you noted, they were both Playboy Playmates from October of 1970. I, uh, I, For research purposes, I looked up the pictures to read the articles. Yeah, uh, for research purposes. Exactly. For all the uh, articles in Playboy. <laughs> but I love how the movie came about. And Paul, if I had to guess, I'd say you did some deep diving on the history of this movie. And correct me if I'm wrong. There was originally going to be a completely different third movie before the producers ran across uh, these twins, as it were, and decided to sort of build a film around them. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Harry Fine was the one who um, saw their spread because Michael Style and Harry Fine were the ones that were kind of behind this trilogy. And they wanted to do something different with the third film that tied a little bit more into... They wanted to build like a trilogy that told one sort of centralized narrative. They even tried to get Ingrid Pitt back again for this movie. Um, and she just wouldn't do it. Um, but yeah, yeah, it was going to be a different thing. And then he saw the <laughs> he saw the spread and he was like, oh, I want I want to make a movie with them. Uh, plus again, like you mentioned right at the start, there's just this thing with twins, you know, it's just, there's the yin and the yang. Like it's very easy for an audience to identify, oh, there's a good twin and an evil twin. Um, and when it comes to horror, and especially if you have two sort of beautiful women at the forefront, that was kind of hammers most sellable thing in their eyes was, oh, if we get, you know, beautiful women. We have two beautiful women, you know, and one's good and one's virginal and one's more salacious. And, and that's what we'll sell this as. Yeah, absolutely. It, I will say it is weird. Uh, I, I did the research in the wrong order because, yeah, I did look up stuff. And then I watched the movie, obviously. And then while making notes on this, I looked it up and I didn't realize. And it did actually quite stun me uh, when I found out that at the time of filming, both of the Collinson sisters were 18 years old. Ooh, that's cutting it close. That's the, <laughs> cutting it close. It may be, it's still icky. Like they are, especially, uh, Madeline, uh, who plays Frida. I mean, she is very, very uncovered later on in the movie. And that's well, just, yeah. Yeah. More, more about as uncovered as it gets. 
yeah. so uh, it's, it's it's better than to the devil a daughter though Oh, shit, I will man. take I will take the fact that they were eighteen over the other other uh, uh, approach. I should say. Fair, um, and it is worth noting that their performances, I think, in the movie are quite good. I mean, one could imagine that they were cast solely for their beauty and the novelty. Uh, you know uh, that they were like twins and they had appeared in Playboy and whatnot, but they equipped themselves, I think, really well with their performances. Well, they're both dubbed though. Well, fuck. Because <laughs> it's Hammer, so they always have to dub their performers. Because they had a bit of an accent, so they wanted... that, And that's why their voices sound distinct, because each one is voiced by, you know... Yeah. Different... They're both from Malta, I believe. It did make me a bit sad. Um, I did read that... Um, so we have uh, Madeline, who played Frida in this film, who is given kind of the juicier role of the two... She passed away in 2014 at the age of 62 with her sister Mary at her side. Uh, Mary is still oh. living, but it just it kind of made me sad, like to read that, that. that. As twins, you know, we there there's only one left. It just seems kind of wrong in a weird way. I don't know, but yeah. sorry, I don't mean to bring us down at the very beginning of the commentary. Hey, That's Peter, really Cushing. sad. <laughs> Thank you. We should just get we should lean into it and get really sad. I mean, this is also the first film that Peter Cushing did after his wife died. It was, yeah. yeah. That's actually, though, a really interesting point because of the character he plays. His mm-hmm. character is such a fucking asshole. Oh, I hate these. Oh, I love his whole Spider Girls vibe. Like, well, it's oh, basically totally, totally Matthew he, Hopkins. He's playing Frollo from the Hunchback of Notre Dame Disney movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's who he is. <laughs> it looks like he came right off the screen and into a different screen. Um, he's. But he's at the top of his game, isn't he? He's so good. Oh, his performance is fucking incredible, especially considering, like, the movie tries to do something that I'm really, like, I, I love it story-wise, like, as a human being, I, I, I twitch at it. But they try and redeem him a little bit in the final quarter of the movie. And it doesn't work because he starts no. out the movie being such an unrepentant son of a bitch. But I think it's all credit to Cushing's performance that he makes him a rounded enough and three-dimensional enough character that you can almost buy that switch. You can buy that turn in the man where, you know, maybe he does feel regret. Maybe his eyes are opened a little bit. Maybe he does at the end of his life, a life lived doing really, really heinous shit, you know, that he does want to do one good thing, you know, at the end. I, I, I can, I, I appreciate his performance for so many things in this movie, but especially for that. There, I that was the one thing I struggled with in this film is I feel like the movie wanted us to see him as more of a flawed person as opposed to a straight villain, and I do not think that the script was successful in that. Right, like because there's a line even halfway through the movie where um uh Anton. oh my gosh the yeah Anton says. Oh, well, your uncle's misguided, but he's really a good man. And I'm like, what the fuck? No, he's not. He's not a good man. Like, he is murdering innocent women. Like, there's a difference between uh, there's a line that gets crossed. Right. Even if, like, you think you're doing the righteous thing, if you cross certain lines, you are not a good person. Like, like and I think that Anton were to believe that he sees that like he knows that is true. But the script 
I feel like kind of goes back to, oh, but we want the audience to kind of like him so he can achieve redemption. And I, I feel like it's just, it, it unsuccessfully paints that picture at times. I, I do think I, I, it kind of works for me in a way. Again, I don't think he's redeemed by the end of it. I think he's, he, he's still a complete bastard and he's done things that are unforgivable. But, I, you know, I joked a moment ago that he was very much like Matthew Hopkins from Witchfinder General. But I will say the difference between Vile, and I love that his name is pronounced Vile. Yeah. Um, I do like that unlike most Puritans, most Witchfinders, you know, who were just grifters looking to steal land or punish their enemies while is a believer, you know, like there's, there's something that, that doesn't make him any more likable, but it means that he is, you know, there's something twisted in him where he truly believes that he is doing good. I think that makes him, it's weird to say because it doesn't make him sympathetic, but it does make him more sympathetic than somebody who knows better and still commits atrocities to me, you know, like, but he's still, again a complete bastard i mean like most extremists he doesn't understand the very book that he's constantly beating at people you know what i mean right yeah i get that and i think that his character is really interesting and yeah i was gonna say this movie's very clearly influenced by witchfinder general like this is not just witchfinder oh go ahead what were you saying now no i was agreeing like straight up he's right out of witchfinder's general like yeah it's this movie almost feels like an answer to what AIP was kind of doing. Like this feels like a, like hammer sort of responding to uh, trends in American horror that oh. were kind of like taking what hammer was and, and moving it to a new level of cruelty. And um, I, I, I really dig that. I really dig their take on that, even though it's a bit, you know, for lack of a better word, derivative of it. Um, but, you know, and that opening, man, I know we're, we're way past that, but like right out the gate, I think one of my first notes when I was because I always take notes on my phone when I watch this movies, I was like, man, this isn't fucking around. Like, <laughs> is, like he, he's like, let us pray as like an innocent girl screams as she's burning to death behind him and the credits are all I'm like, Jesus. And then you get the impression that Cushing isn't even necessarily our villain. You know, because there's a Karnstein in this movie. Like, mm-hmm. it's it's such an interesting situation to put us in. Because at every turn, there's sort of villainy and people you can't really trust. And it forces you into the arms of like, okay, who's less worse? Right? Like, because Cushing in some ways, like, ends up being a bit of an answer to Karnstein. Or Karnstein, because he kind of has to be. You don't really have a choice. Even though that guy's also terrible. Um, and you know that, you know, the Karnstein has to be defeated. So I think it's cool to put us in these murky waters. It, it, again, it feels it feels like some of the mid 60s hammers that started playing with morality in interesting ways um, and, and recontextualizing good and evil. Yeah, and it definitely like it trades in kind of that morally gray kind of like murk you know and i love that like it's you know it's funny last week i talked about don't breathe too and in a weird way it's kind of the same thing here where it's paul as you noted it's uh you know everybody's kind of bad on both sides but there are just different shades to the bad you know and ultimately we kind of have to throw in with the least bad of the bunch um i will say it's unfortunate you know paul we've talked about this before but the last time we did i think was probably a decade worth of films ago um, 
you know, and here we are like 10 years later and, you know, the, the, the one person of color, the, the, the black man here is yeah. a mute evil servant. And I'm just like, oh, guys, we're, we're in the seventies. Like you, you probably should have fucking know better than this. Damn it. It just, it's, and plus, you know, it bugs me that they keep calling him Joachim and I'm just like, guys, it's, 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 it's fucking Joachim. Like, you know, it's come on. Yeah. I don't know. Um, what do we think about this sequence uh, where he sort of went against uh, Karnstein and was kind of embarrassed by him, you know? In a weird way. Uh, Allie, what did you think? Sorry. Continue. <laughs> I well, like my, choked my drink, so I just need a minute. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I will say... I, in a weird way, like, we know this is a Karnstein movie. We know that, um, you know, he's ultimately going to be the villain. He's a vampire, whatever. But just by virtue of the fact that he is able to stand Cushing's vial down, mm-hmm. like, that first note makes me kind of like him more. Like, he's a guy where I'm kind of like, I'm in the weird position at Frida's and in the movie where I'm like, this seems preferable to what is the norm here in this place, you know? Um, yeah. And it's, and I gotta say, like, I'm, I'm not gonna lie pretty early on through a good portion of the movie. Um, you know, I, I was team Frida. I was team Frida all the way. Like she, you know, I, I, I get where she was coming from. She has wants and desires. She has a measure of agency within the story. You know, I think she's, in a weird way, kind of like the most modern character. And I, I like that she's able to see through Vile's bullshit. And uh, God, especially that early scene with her uh, in bed, it, you know, just that one little speech she gives her sister. It's just, it's great that she's such a keen observer and critic of the men of this time and in this place. And, you know, part of me kind of wishes that she hadn't gone so full bore in the villainy because up until this point in the movie, I think she's the most likable and interesting character in it. Well, there's, there's more to her, right? Like, like it's, it, she's more interesting um, than her sister. Who's just sort of pious and doesn't want to take any risks. You know, in terms of the narrative, you're, you're going to be a lot more interested in what the person who's breaking the rules is doing. Not to mention the person she's defying is is human garbage, uh, you know, the 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 vile, Mister Vile, <laughs> like, you know, God, that's his name is Vile. <laughs> he, it's telling you straight out, like this guy's bad. You're supposed to go against him, and I agree with you with the Karn, Karnstein stuff. Like the first introduction you really get to this guy is he's like mouthing off to this piece of shit. Uh, holier than thou character, and you're like, yeah, get him, go after him. And he even says, he's like, oh, look, are you gonna burn some more innocent girls? Like he's saying stuff that that the audience would want to say to him, and there's nothing Cushing can do about it um, because he's sort of you know signed off on by the you know by the ruler of the land or whatever it is. Um, and I love how sort of like decadent he is about everything and uh, careless and just kind of you know he comes off like a rich asshole, but he's a rich asshole who's you know, making fun of this even worse person until we learn sort of what kind of man he actually is as well. And so as the layers get peeled back, um, and I think that's what's interesting and what you were sort of getting at probably earlier with the Peter Cushing stuff is that, you know, his outside layer is he's, he's terrible. The next layer down, you start to realize, okay, 
he believes what he's doing is right. He's trying to make a better world versus like Karn Karnstein, where it's like you, you pull a layer back. It's like, Oh no, he's even worse underneath. <laughs> yeah. There's, yeah, there's something of like Frank or Chenard in Karnstein to me. Like Karnstein is a great sort of predecessor to those characters. I think where, Oh yeah. I, he's kind of like, he just he's he's bored with this world and he wants more pleasure. He wants uh, he wants more knowledge. He just wants more and he's willing to explore and go to whatever lengths he has to 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 know more, as it were. And I don't know. It just it it would not surprise me if uh, if if Barker hadn't been a fan of this movie and if that hadn't sort of woven its way into some of his characters. Yeah, there's a there's a line that um, Karnstein has at some point where he talks about the pleasures of death and the pleasures beyond the grave and seeking those out. And I just wrote down Hellraiser shit because <laughs> like this movie, Hellraiser shit. it's Hellraiser shit straight through. Like this is a hundred percent a precursor to Hellraiser. Absolutely. Um, and that was something I really enjoyed about it because it was a different way of looking at what a vampire is you know it's like it's like the next level it's a way to experience things in a different way and seek out a new kind of ecstasy um through blood and pain and death and i was like holy shit yeah like there, there's absolutely no way this movie didn't influence hellraiser i love that we have like in the middle of this witch finder slash vampire movie now we have a cult like this movie is like you know what we're we're just gonna hit all of the all of the notes yeah. we're gonna play the greatest hits they're playing the hits yeah for sure I love that there's this whole cult but I also love that when he holds the knife up to the bag the bag like like a, there's a magnet and it moves towards the knife <laughs> that is pretty good is uh that's some that's some oh, I love Kensington Gore. that is uh icky I will say that I love the actor playing Karnstein even more than like. You know, up until this point, who do we have? Like Lugosi and Christopher Lee, if you want to count, uh, you know, Baron Meinster. Like, to me, this Karnstein, this vampire, this hammer guy, like, he gets closer to, like, the very Byron nature that some of the later vampires and, you know, movies and whatnot really sort of kind of cling to in a way. And I, I love it. I love that he plays him like such a, Paul, I think you mentioned it, like such an asshole, but he is really charismatic and he's fun to watch and he's a guy who, there is not really a shred of good in him. And he is a guy who revels in being evil. He winds up fun. You know, he's not the animal that Lee's Dracula is. He's, uh, or, you know, kind of the opportunist that Meinster is. He, he's a guy who's just having a blast being bad. Yeah. Yeah. He's an interesting, uh, sort of character to compare to someone like, like a Baron Meinster, you know, like, because he feels like cut from the same cloth as a character like that, but he's more willing to wear who he actually is on his sleeve a bit. Like he he revels in it in a way that, you know, someone like Meinster doesn't because he wants to conceal it and, and appear almost a bit weaker than he maybe actually is. So people pity him. Whereas this well, guy. The... Oh, sorry. Go no, no. I like this guy almost has like a like a. Patrick Bateman kind of feel to him where he just like wants to completely own the room and, and have everyone know that he's the guy in charge. Well, too, I think the difference between those two characters that you mentioned is that this is a guy who is utterly free of consequence. 
Like he, you know, the witch finders cannot beat down his door and do a damn thing to him. He's protected. He's wealthy. He can do literally whatever the hell he wants. And uh, it's a really interesting place to start with a guy like that. And this scene does go to some icky, icky places. So, Ellie, you said this was the first time you'd seen this? It was. So what, what was... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I just think, like, it's... What, obviously, it's visually stunning. I mean, look at this room that they're currently in, having this weird seance. Like, it's just... It's just beautiful. I also find that this girl on this table uh, doesn't know if she's being filmed or not, so she's just kind of looking around like, are, are we done? We good? <laughs> <laughs> Is this is this uh, a cut? Have we cut yet? My no? in okay. can, can you see me? <laughs> I'm cold. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, how does it how does it stack up to Hammer's like vampire films for you? Well, are we talking about the three in this trilogy, or just in general? No, just like all of them. How does it oh, stack up to like all of the Hammer vampire stuff? probably middle of the road for me because i feel like i truly didn't like the other two in this series but i also liked you know um christopher lee's version of am i right on that christopher lee's version of dracula yes yeah yeah Yeah, Yeah, okay i often get him and peter cushing screwed up they're just like two old white men and i'm like (laughs) i have to remember more i mean to be fair they are two old white men and i totally get get bite your tongues no, I mean they're both great. You know they're I love them. Great, they're fantastic. It's just I'm just I, agreeing that they're a little too bit old interchangeable. No. Oh, I'm sorry. Jinx is never going to agree to that, but um. I think they're both very talented, but like, of course, yes. Either of them could be in this role, and I'd be like, "Fuck yeah." Yeah, yeah. I I um I agree. I mean, so I was really surprised at how much I liked it. Um, and I think it holds up pretty well to even some of Hammer's best stuff. Like, I would definitely rank it higher than some of the Lee Dracula movies. Oh. Um, probably not the best ones. Yeah, not um, the best ones. But like, but like it, it would be up there. I think it would be high. It would be higher on my list than I ever expected. It's no Brides, but it's a damn sight better than Prince of Darkness. Maybe. <clears throat> it's a damn sight better than Prince of Darkness, he said loudly. Yeah. Barbara Shelley. Barbara Shelley's. Barbara one. Shelley deserved better. Um, Barbara Shelley did a great job, but that's fine. She did, she did, but she deserved better. Prince of Darkness walks so this movie could run, is all I'm saying. But uh, so, yeah, no, I I, I, I really liked it. Um, Prince, it Prince, really of Darkness, Prince of Darkness crawled because that's much we're not, slower. We're not much slower than walking. And that is a film that is Terrence Fisher. It is. <laughs> this is beautiful. And like, this is totally like love and enjoy. I just think it's very stunning. This is AIP, Paul. Yeah. Like you were talking about yeah. the, the Oh yeah. This is the, AIP. the AIP uh influence on this film is so strong. <laughs> like you have to imagine like Vincent Price's uh Prospero just strolling around oh, in the background with like man. some wine, you know? If like, you oh, if they had squeezed fucking Vincent Price, hell, put oh, Vincent Price as Karnstein. Yeah, like, I mean, get him in there. Yeah. Like, I don't even care. Like, I know he's older, but like, put him in that role because how great would that have been? 
Now, it's worth noting here, I did not realize this when I just casually watched these movies, but doing a little bit of research, I had no idea. This is the third film in the Karnstein trilogy. Mm-hmm. I but thought we mentioned that. Well, we did, but being that it's set in the 17th century, I didn't realize until this watch and doing a little bit of research that this movie is effectively a prequel to The Vampire Lovers and Lust for a Vampire. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense, like, timeline-wise. Yeah, that does make sense. I didn't think about that either. Yeah, hey, is is this woman then a relative of his? Paul, that's like his great-grandma or something. And they do stuff that no great-grandma and her great-grandson are yeah. doing. Great-grandma. Like, what's the generational gap? Like, just So you're it. saying if enough <laughs> generations pass and you time travel... And your relative is super hot. It's cool. That means that so. This Karnstein... is like the Philip J. Fry situation from Futurama. I don't know if you guys watch Futurama. Yeah, Karnstein but, uh... is his own grandpa. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know. That's how in the future he can fight the brain aliens. That's the only way it would work. What if you needed to do it in the past to save everybody in the future? I mean, you had to do the nasty in the past, sir. That <laughs> is your great grandmother. And by the way, I just want to say right here, give it a second. Because I just want to point out this moment coming. You're talking about the candle, aren't you? No, I'm not going to talk about. I'm not going to talk about the candle. I'm not going to talk about. I'm not going to talk. There's no talking about the candle, Paul. But I just wanted to say here when, uh, you know, obviously he's he's kissing his great grandma, you know, and she, you know, he's like, is he's he Tarantino's her a little bit, and then. you know, it's it's just all gauzy, and they shoot it like it's a it's a love scene, and I'm like, that's not how you turn people into vampires, or maybe it is. Maybe that's how she maybe does that's it. That's how you turn a family member into a vampire. Okay, so I'm not going to talk about the candle, but here is the part with the yeah, candle that I want to talk I about. I knew it. I knew there, it. I there is no subtext <laughs> to the shot whatsoever. Yes. None. No, do it more. Like there needs to be like five minutes of that. A bunch of wax was... should have like spilled off the top. Yeah, it's an aggressive <laughs> Like just, just you know, make the subtext text is what did, it boils down to. Yeah. Did anybody think that she was going to pick up like the candle holder and bash him with it? Like at least that yes, would have made sense. I, that is what I thought. 100%. I thought she was going yeah. to. I thought it was all like a a, a a ruse to trick him or to get him into a place where she could attack him for whatever reason. And then I was wrong. And then instead, with that not being the case, instead all we're left with is uh, she. Uh, you know, he gives the candle a happy ending. So what do we think? No, no, we got We got to live with that statement for a moment. Paul. Yeah. Okay. All right. Come on. Let's, we'll take a beat for the happy ending joke. Ready? And. and... All right. Okay, we're good. good. Yeah. Um, so why can't oh. he see him? Does this guy look He's like Jimmy Fallon yet. to anybody else? God. Oh, my, I was going to bring it up. He does look like Jimmy Fallon. Oh, now he's a vampire. Oh, my God. Why did you tell me he looked like Jimmy Fallon? I'm never yeah. going to be able to watch this again. Like Because now like, all I see is else. fucking Jimmy Fallon trying not to break <laughs> in every scene, doing his absolute darndest to not break, because he always fucking breaks, Jimmy Fallon. Oh, yeah. God, he looks just like Jimmy. Okay, now I want to see a sketch. I want to see a Jimmy Fallon sketch where he recreates his... All right, anyway. Um, what do we think about the the way people turn into vampires in this film? Because once again, it changes the lore. I It just... It's a given at this point that there's not going to be any sort of consistency, not even with all the Hammer vampire movies, but even right. within the Karnstein Even franchise. within the Karnstein films. 
<laughs> There's no consistency. But I, I do like one thing I really dug was because they explain it as like if you're oh God, and I don't remember what the line was, but something along the lines of like if you're if there's evil in your heart and you're capable of it, the bite of a vampire will turn you and not kill you. So it suggests that like if you aren't capable of it, you would just die. Right. I mean, by that logic, yes. So I think it would have been really cool to see, like, him try to turn someone and they just die. <laughs> like, well, like, the Mary, idea that you can't kill a, a turn everyone, I think, is a pretty interesting vampire thought. That would be a neat scene yeah. to see him, like, biting somebody, hoping to turn them into a vampire, and they yeah. just collapse. And he has to kneel next to them and just kind of, like... Yeah, and then he's like, he's sort of like dour about it. Like, because, you know, in all these movies, typically he, the, the vampire is going to turn like multiple side characters. You know, imagine um, in Brides, if like the her her friend at the boarding school who like wanted to like, oh, I'm so jealous that you're going to be marrying the, you know, the, the Baron, or, you know, and, and then when he goes and turns her, if she had just died because she was a good person and like she didn't have it within her to be a vampire. Um, I'd like to see just a good five minutes of a character like that sulking afterwards. Like, you know, I didn't even want to, I didn't yeah, even want to turn yeah. into a vampire. Well, I, I don't that. care. She'd be like a rejection. Better you know? brides. Mm-hmm. Um, I but thought I, I knew her. Yeah. And it could have just been poetic language, like in the script, like it, it could have just been like a metaphor. Uh, but I, I just kind of latched onto that idea since this movie sort of, you know, it's like, I bite you. And then within seconds you disappear. Like there's no transformation. You just are a vampire now is interesting to me. One thing we haven't talked about up until this point is as much as we've talked about how great the movie looks and how well it's made, like this is directed by a filmmaker named John. I hope I get it right. I I'm, I'm of two minds on this. It's either John Howe or John Huff. Do either of you know if I've heard it both ways, so I'm not like a hundred percent sure. So we're going to call him John. So (laughs) John, (laughs) John directed episodes of the Avengers and the saint. And apparently he got on hammers radar when they picked up a television pilot. He had directed called, and I really want to seek this out, uh, wolf's head, the legend of Robin hood. And, uh, unfortunately it never went to series. I think it was released on its own. It was like a 54 minute film that, uh, just sadly never became a TV show, but, Apparently, at around that time, at around the time that he had made the leap from television to his first feature film, he had penned an article where he had discussed uh, basically all he felt was wrong with contemporary horror films and, quote, how it should be put right. And, uh, Paul, as you'd mentioned, Harry Fine, one of the producers on this, uh, one of the guys who was a part of Fantal, who had produced the previous Karnstein films, he had seen that article, and apparently that's kind of what put john on their radar so uh, i thought that was kind of cool i think he directs the hell out of this movie i think he is probably one of the very best directors that hammer employed he would go on to direct movies like uh i mean my goodness he did the legend of hell house and dirty mary crazy larry he did both uh both of the early witch mountain movies uh, escape to witch mountain and return to witch mountain um and he also did howling four but you know what you can't win them all um hey, I, and i was gonna say like Legend of Hell House is an amazing haunted house movie. Like, one of the best. Um, and it's it's uh, got a great Blu-ray from Screen Factory, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really atmospheric. It's really beautifully directed. 
Um, Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry is a great movie. Um, I know you just mentioned it, but like he has such range as a director, Um, you know, to watch him make atmospheric horror to exciting action comedy. Um, And then like he even made, um, did any of you guys see American Gothic? Never have the, I remember seeing the VHS when I was a kid all the time, but all these years later, I still haven't seen the film. So it's got a great Scream Factory Blu-ray as well. Um, so yeah, Shout's put out a bunch of his movies because Shout also, uh, it wasn't Scream, but Shout put out Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry on a double feature with um, uh, uh, double, Race with the Double, right? Race with the Double, yeah, Race with the Double. And that's Peter um, Fonda just doing cool yeah. shit in VHS. Oh, and Race, Race with, if you haven't seen that, that movie's like the fucking best. Um, Allie, have you seen Race with the Devil? Uh, I have seen clips of it, but I don't think I've seen the whole thing. If you get the chance, it is one of the best cult movies I think ever made. It's it's so good. It's like people on a road trip sort of end up accidentally like running into this crazy sat- like satanic cult. <laughs> and then like and then they just try to like and then they're just like chased by this cult for the whole movie. <laughs> And they're just on like a road trip vacation, like in a camper. Like they're and just like literally everyday people. Everybody <laughs> is in the cult. Everybody. And it's so well, much fun. Like it is one of the most fun movies ever easily. And he also directed the incubus, which is super fucked up. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever seen that from 1981. No, uh, I never have. So it's a vinegar. Welcome to Paul's vinegar syndrome corner, where I talk about a vinegar syndrome movie. Um, it was put on Blu-ray by Vinegar Syndrome, and it is super fucked up. It's a, it's a, uh, it plays out like a really brutal slasher, um, but like it, it involves like, like this, these weird like rape crimes and stuff. But it has like the supernatural element. It's like super dark and fucked up, but it's surprisingly well made um, and very scary. So it's it's definitely one that like if you want to watch something very brutal from the early 80s that has slasher vibes but goes to some like much weirder darker places it's it's definitely worth uh checking out but he he yeah and then he does that right up against a Disney movie. <laughs> it's like what the <laughs> fuck this guy like I don't know but yeah I I really appreciate him as a director. Ali I will say like Race with the Devil please put that on your list is like the very next thing that you need to seek out because uh as as we've noted, like action or road movie starring Peter Fonda and Warren Oates. Like, I don't know that I could ever sell a movie better than that. I don't think you can either. I mean. Also, yeah. Laura Parker from Dark Shadows. Just throwing that out there. Since since we're talking about the people who made the movie, um, one thing that I think really stands out is um, we talked about the look. So Dick Bush's cinematography. <laughs> um yeah his name is dick bush That's just all <laughs> that's elephant in the room his name is dick bush i feel horrible for his undoubtedly painful high school career um but he shot i i the the thing to me that really like if you want to point to why this movie looks so good this man shot william freaking sorcerer oh shit holy fuck one of the like most insane best looking movies probably ever was he on uh, the bridge 
in Sorcerer. I mean, he had to. I mean, he was the he was the director of photography. I mean, that's when that's when you direct the photography and you put a cameraman out there in your place. Right. Like, (laughs) I mean, set the lights and get the hell back. But but he (laughs) I mean, he shot that he shot. Oh, and and another uh, early 70s. Uh, hammer film that looks great is dracula ad 1972 he shot that he shot blood on satan's claw oh my god uh this guy shot so many great things um and he shot the quick and the dead (laughs) he shot a movie it's a movie but he shot it uh phase four you ever saw phase four the ant movie saul bass movie killer ant killer ant movies uh, anyway, very, very great cinematographer uh, that I think, you know, really. Oh, and and my one of my personal favorites, 1981's The Fan. I don't know I if you guys have ever fan. seen The Fan. The Fan is so good. Another Screen Factory movie. You're a fan, right? Huh? I've sadly never seen The Fan. The follows the rock star and they have like a romantic interlude. And then he's like, I don't like you. And she's like, eh, and then kills him. Well, that's a different The Fan. I also like that. That's the German movie, that's Der, a German Der Fan. Fan, right? Okay, so we're thinking about yeah. different movies. There are so two different movies from that time period. period Robert De Niro. Fan. We're not talking Robert De Niro and Wesley Snipes. We're not talking about Robert De Niro <laughs> and like, Wesley Snipes. Though. Which is not a bad movie. No, no, no. That No, Tony Scott, all of Tony Scott's films are good. All of them. I don't care what anyone says. Everyone's good. Some are better than others, um, but no, there's there are two other the fans that we're conf- we're confusing with one another. The one I'm thinking of, though, funny enough, Allie, is also about an obsessive fan of an well, instead of a music star, it's like an actress, and he sends her letters, and and one day she sort of like rejects those letters, so he sort of wants to find her and sort of get at her life and ruin her life. Is the premise of that song Stan by Eminem? It kind of is. If you haven't seen it, um, and and I agree, your initial thought of Dare Fan, like that movie is amazing and I love it. It's so good. Oh, it's so fucking good, yes. Um, But this movie is also really good, just in a different way. And it's kind of like a a not too often seen early 80s slasher stalker kind of movie. Um, And it's really, really good. So, if uh, yeah, you should definitely check it out again. Scream Factory put it out in blue, so it's pretty easy to get. Um, It might be streaming, but it's, yeah, really worth watching. I feel like we're doing our uh, (laughs) what we've been watching lately. But, uh, but yeah called the fan the fan 1981 uh shot by dick bush <laughs> i got it because i'm like uh there's the one i was just saying and then there's the other one with de niro and yes well that one's fun too well, but, it's uh, like a tv you know. show de niro de fan i i did a tony fan. scott watchathon recently so i did i did recently rewatch that or watch that movie for the first time i had never seen it what if Jimmy Fallon is a vampire? What if this is actually him? I would love mm-hmm. that. It would make me like Jimmy Fallon all the more. And I already like him pretty like, a lot. I like him way more as the Tonight Show host than I did when he was on Saturday Night Live, where I thought he was just absolutely insufferable. I like him better as a talk show host than I did when he was just trying to be Adam Sandler Jr. Yeah. Yeah. 
Because that's all he tried to be on SNL. He was like, I'm I'm the younger Adam Sandler, and he's just not Adam Sandler. And like this when he released his little like musical comedy album, I bought it. (laughs) (laughs) This is such a beautiful scene. Uh I love the upside down, like glowing red cross and the blue background, the smoke, the flames just, you know, in the midground there, you know, her dress uh, against like his black suit. Like it's just so damn gorgeous. And I, 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 what do you all think about this moment in the movie? Would you all agree with me that at least at a certain point in the first third of the movie that Frida is so I love this mirror effect. That's such a great sleight of hand. Uh, mm-hmm. It's completely obvious how they did it, and I don't care, you know? Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, Frida is, I think, to me anyway, up until a certain point of the movie, I think she is the most sympathetic. Like, she's the most believable. She's the most human out of all of them. But eventually we do get the turn here. And part of me, like was a little resistant to it because I felt like, okay, well, here we have a woman who is wanting to obviously, you know, break her ties with, you know, uh, what is expected of her and live her own life. And what does that ultimately mean for her is that she turns evil and now she must be put down. But instead, like, I, I wonder if there isn't something a little more morally gray there. Where I, What I took from it was the fact that, like, the, this notion that, that sort of repression that was coming from her elders, you know, that sort of repression that leads to uh, like a need for the youth to escape, you know, like that escape can lead to freedom. Sure. But in some cases, as this movie kind of illustrates, it can lead to danger or, you know, in this case, evil. I don't I don't necessarily think it's making a broader statement about, you know, Puritanism being uh, the best for everyone. <laughs> you know, I don't want to read the movie that way. No, but... <laughs> I, I think it, but I think it appeals to the counterculture of of the the youth in the early seventies. You know, I think I'm sure that was going through their minds when they wrote the script. It was like, oh, well, this will appeal to that sort of striking back against the elder generation. You know, which a lot of the early seventies Hammer films deal with. Does it give either of you pause then that that? if Frida then represents that kind of counterculture, then she is the thing that has to kind of be put right at the end of the movie by, you know, it would, <laughs> it would and by, you know, our it would, well, hero. Can, can I just say it would bother me more if Gustav didn't fucking die. You know what I mean? Like if he had lived. So if, if Peter Cushing's character had successfully killed the count, and been the hero, then it would have bothered me. But as it stands, both the puritanical sort of religious rites and the kind of, um, you know, far, far opposite direction, uh, you know, oh, give in to your lust and your pleasure guy also gets his. And what's left is, you know, the dude who Anton, who's kind of right in the middle, (laughs) He's more like a normal, he's like, no, I'm a normal guy. I just want people to live their lives. I don't want to bother anybody. We should all be free to do what we want. He's the guy who wins. Yeah. You know, so that's why I think it's okay. I do want to call bullshit on Anton here, though, for, yeah, I mean, he, the first time we meet him, he's telling Madeline that, or rather Frida, that 
you know, Vile isn't maybe that bad of a guy. You know, it is prefaced with him saying something like he's misguided or something like that. But he goes from trying to soft sell Vile to, you know, these young women to, you know, finally, when we catch him alone, he's saying, you know, essentially, OK, Vile is a leader of sadists trading in wanton cruelty. It's like that's that's a hell of a divide between well, those two that's... takes. Well, I mentioned that earlier as I see that as a problem with the writing. I think I think some of the writing doesn't work. Um, I just don't. I, I think that that specific thing you just talked about is is more like because when he says when he's like, oh, your your father's a good man. I'm like, you don't you don't even think that like it's very clear that you do not believe you wrote a fucking letter to the church about him not being a good man. You know, it's like you you do not believe that, but you're saying those words because they're written in the script. And and once we get past that first sort of act or the first half of the film when he when he sort of like leans into how he actually feels, um, then we then we see what 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 is really going on. And I'm not saying he's a perfect character, but I do think comparative comparatively to the other two characters, he he's a much better option. And and for the time that it was made. I think he's meant to represent somebody who is in favor of people living li- their life the way they want to live it, as long as they're not hurting someone else. Which I can be on board with. You know what I really love about Anton? He's his played eyes. by. Yes, his eyes are delightful, <laughs> but he's played. He's played by David Warbeck from Fulci's The Beyond. Yep, that is true. I, I thought I recognized like, him. He is so good. Uh, he's in the Black Cat as well. He appeared in a handful of. Oh, the like, Black really... Cat. Oh, <laughs> some it. really, That's really it. noteworthy horror films throughout the course of the seventies. It really bummed me out to find out. Again, in doing research, I didn't realize this, but he passed away in the mid nineties at uh at fifty five. That sucks. So young, fifty-five. That's so young. In the mid nineties, no less. Like I, it's nobody it's wants to die in the nineties. Ugh, nineties were the best. Not at the time. Yes. <laughs> at the time, I mean, they were kind of like, "This is no, fine." I, I we got Game Boys. <laughs> loved the nineties. I wish I could. Game ever Boys forever. I was a child. I mean, I I was young. I was a I don't child know. in the nineties, so okay. I'm like, I, I I do love the nineties because I grew up in the nineties. I mean, Nickelodeon was my life. All the oh, Nick you're about, you're what, four years behind me. But like that mean that we were. I was a kid oh, you, in the nineties. Okay, but okay, I was so a literal kid in the nineties. Yeah, I'm not lying. Nineties about how you probably feel about the early aughts. <laughs> I would say, huh? No, I'm not saying like I'm so much younger than you. I'm I'm saying like I was a kid in the nineties. So it's like I wasn't years where you know the the, that period means more to you. So for me, like I really came of age during a specific stretch of the nineties. When I say nineties, what I'm really meaning is like ninety five to ninety nine. So and you know what, I get that with the eighties because I was born obviously in the eighties, and people are always like, "Oh, you must love the eighties," and and I do, but I don't have. I was not old enough to understand 80s culture at all you know i was i was very little in the 80s so it's like you know when people are like oh do you remember this remember i'm like no i don't i mean i i know of it because of like i had i know our family had a nintendo (laughs) that's about that's about as far as my 80s culture extends but the 90s i was old enough to like retain the culture of the time 
So I definitely enjoy watching like 90s stuff and everything. But yeah, you're right. The early 2000s are more what I have like strong nostalgia for because that's when I was old enough to kind of engage with the culture on my own, you know, yes. with not yeah. through the lens of my parents. Because in the 90s, anything I was doing was sort of given to me by my parents. It wasn't something I was choosing other than like watching a cartoon show or something. Like, you know, I loved the X-Men animated series and I loved uh, Rugrats and Doug and all the Nicktoons and all that stuff. But like in the 2000s, I was going to movies and I was buying stuff and like, yeah, I was buying my own clothes and things like that that had to do more with like the actual culture. So, yeah, you're right. I, that, that's more where I'm sort of immersed. Allie, where where would that be for you? Uh. Kind of the same because I was born in 89. So like my literal childhood years were all in the 90s. Um, but like I came from a family and an older brother that was like super chill with showing me horror movies. So like I absorbed a lot. And yeah, by the time the 2000s rolled around, I was like, this is my fucking jam. Like, you know, it occurred to me. I don't think I've ever I'm sure Paul and I have talked about this. Allie, I don't think I've ever asked you. What was your first horror film? Oh, I truly don't know, but I feel like it was like it was something real messed up that I saw at a really inappropriate age. Like I think it was like Clockwork Orange when I was like seven. Oh no. <laughs> and it was just one of those things where you're like, well, wow. that stays with you, and you're like, oh, okay. Your brother might have been too chill. No, I think <laughs> that was more so my dad. Your dad might have been too wow. chill. And then my brother was just like, like, we'd always get like, you know, like he was my babysitter. So when my mom was at work and my dad wasn't around because, you know, he died. Sorry to be around for that. Um, we would just like get money and go to the video store. My brother was in charge of renting us films. So he didn't want to watch the shit I wanted to watch. He was like, no, no, we're going to watch some scary movies. And I'm going to teach you about scary movies. I love it. I love that. Yeah, I, I see. I was the older brother. Ah. Um, but I sadly w w did not do a great job of indoctrinating my younger brother into horror. Well, you know what? I feel like I kind of did, but much later because I didn't get into horror. I, I say it all the time until later in life. So probably like 18 to 19 was when I started dipping my toes in the horror waters and became fully obsessed heading into my 20s. And I kind of brought my brother along on the journey. Um, and now he's a huge horror fan. Um, but we were both like older, <laughs> you know, so it wasn't like I was showing him something when he was so young. I mean, we were like, he was probably like 16 and I was like 19, you know. Kind oh, of no, thing, ours was three like, years apart. Uh, ours was more like he was 12 and I was 10 and like. Mm. Like, I don't know if you guys had these in the States, but do you guys ever have those, like, Scholastics books fairs that came to your school? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, okay, so they always had, like, random books about, like, movie monsters and universal monsters and stuff. Yes. So my brother would obsessively buy those. And he used to buy the little pocket edition ones, which I think we still have, that were just, like, this is of the mummy, and this one's of Frankenstein, and this one's of Dracula. And it was, like, a little Cole's notes that could fit right into your pocket. But, like, that was where he started getting his love of horror, I think. And then he kind of passed it on to me. And then, of course, we were, like, Goosebumps kids. and <gasps> Me too. And, like, you're <laughs> Indiana. And 
then we got really into like the X-Files and the Outer Limits and because my parents also got into like X-Files and stuff. So that was like a family show we could watch together. That's so cool. I'm going to give. Um, oh, I want to plug uh, Heather Wixon's new book. Yes. Monsters, Makeup and Effects. I got my copy because <gasps> I pre-ordered it. I pre-ordered it and I got it super early. So everyone out there who wants it should pre-order it and you'll get it early. I am going to. I'm going to give it to my 10 year old to read. That's awesome. Um, and I'm, yeah. And I, I'm going to, uh, I, I was going to tell Heather about this, but yeah, I, I really want my daughter to read it because she loves watching effects stuff and then watching the special, like she's really mad whenever I show her something and there isn't a making of feature on the Blu-ray. Cause now she just expects it. She's like, well, now I got to see how they did it. And I'm like, well, not every Blu-ray has that, honey. And she's like, what? They have to show us how they did. That's what they need to. Like, she gets really indignant. I love that. When a movie doesn't, like, have a feature telling you how they made an effect. She's like, well, what? Well, how am I supposed to know? And I'm like, well, they don't all do it. It's just, it's a thing. So I love it. I want a commentary. This is bullshit. Yeah, she's she's so mad about it. And so I was like, I'm going to get this book that my friend wrote. And I'm going to have you read it. And it's going to walk you through all kinds of ways that they make, you know, effects and bring this stuff to life. So I'm, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to really pass that on to, to a new generation. Well, you know what um, you need to have on deck. I'm just throwing this out there as a suggestion. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, do it. Go for but it. But have some like, like latex kits that you buy from like spirit Halloween, some spirit gum, sure, some yeah, like fake yeah. blood, some collodion, just have well, it ready. And we know? do, we do our short film competition and the kids make movies now. I don't know oh, if I told so you that. Cute. No. So yeah, because I do I do Oktoberfest every year. I've, Ellie, I don't know if I've ever told you about Oktoberfest. No. Um, oh man, it's a long conversation. I hate to do it in the middle of the commentary, but They're here like, we go. Um, so every year, uh, okay. So coming out of film school, I realized like not a lot of my friends and family loved horror like I did, and I wanted to make them love horror. So I was trying to think of ways to get them to do it. So I started this thing called Oktoberfest. So every Halloween season. Uh, I hold a short amateur film festival for friends and family. No expectations around quality of it. It's just anybody can do anything. So you can pick up your phone, shoot something random around your house, turn it in. That counts. And the idea was to get everyone to sort of engage. And then we'd all get together, watch these movies as a group, which is really fun to do. And then we give out awards like a best picture award, funniest movie, scariest movie, best acting, you know, just like fun little awards. And we got trophies and stuff. And uh, we've now been doing it. This will be our 14th year. Um, over 120 movies have been made for this thing. Um, and yeah, it's so cool. And like, like even like my mother-in-law, who's like a retired youth minister, makes horror movies for this. And some of her stuff is really fucked up. <laughs> Well, but yeah, like you get oh yeah you get everything from like like i said someone and it's people who like don't make movies so it's really cool to see like the ideas they come up with and how they execute them and again it's it's very lo-fi like it's people picking up their cell phones and shooting some random stuff with their friends you know whatever and then you also have like my buddy who's a cinematographer for like u of i and champagne and shoots their national commercials will send something in and it looks like a real movie so you have like that next to my mother-in-law's movie and then like his doesn't necessarily win because it's all about the feeling it evokes and what people sort of gravitate towards. And uh, yeah, it's super fun. We have a plaque 
where the best pictures go and I have that engraved on a plaque. Um, so that way it's sort of like called out and yeah, it's this big deal now. And now my kids, when we started this, we didn't even have kids. Now my kids are making movies for this thing and they all look forward to it. My nephew actually has already made like two movies and he's like trying to make a third one so he can make like the best version of his movie before the festival. Like it's an all year thing for them. Um, I'm actually really excited. I feel like I might've created a filmmaker in him. Uh, I, I like he is hardcore into it. So I'm going to get him some, some books and stuff on filmmaking, but, um, but yeah, so it's, it's this really fun thing. Um, yeah. And I, I make movies for it. I mean, again, I don't put a lot of it online because it's very, very low fi, but it's, it's a super, super fun thing. I've put a few of them up, but like, yeah, it's, it's coming up this year, but yeah, my daughter now like makes movies for it and she's starting to ask questions about how to do certain special effects and it's really cool. Oh, that's amazing. Um, did you hear about, uh, so obviously the late great George Romero, his wife, Sue started this summer camp program for kids during COVID. And it was basically called like filmmaker in a box or something. And they send you like a couple of things on how to make your own horror films. And you're supposed to send them back to her. And then they have like a little film festival themselves with Sue Romero. No, I didn't. That's so cool. Yeah. Chris's kids did it. And I was like obsessed with it. They got sent this little package and it came with. Oh my gosh. I'll have to look into that. And a bunch of other stuff and like cute little things like popcorn and like one of those old popcorn boxes and like really kitschy, adorable stuff. But it's like for the kids to do during the summer when they don't have anything else. And it's great for parents who might not be able to afford a summer camp. That's, that's wonderful. Yeah, I know. I would love to do something like that for them because they, they would, they love it. They, they eat it up. Like even my, my seven-year-old, like a year ago, when she was like six or even maybe five, she had my, and obviously we had to help her, but what she wanted to do was she wanted to adapt her favorite story from the scary stories to tell in the dark book. So she did Bloody Fingers. If you guys have ever read, I don't, I don't know how familiar you are with, with that book. I know a decent amount of them. So yeah. Yeah. So she did the Bloody Fingers one and she played every character. So we'd like shoot and she, and here's the crazy shit. We didn't have to do any work on the line. She just knew the story. So she would like get dressed up in her little costumes. She would go dress herself and she'd go sit down and she'd be like, you know, welcome to the inn. And then like, she'd be a guy and she'd be like, hello, I'd like a room, please. You know, like, and then would cut back to the other version of her. And she just read all these lines from memory at that age. Cause she had read the story so many times. Oh my God. That's, that's interesting. Awesome. It was super fun. Yeah, I, I should show you that one. That one's really cute. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll I'll give you guys links to some of these movies if you actually. I mean, I not that you have to watch them, but they're 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 fun. No, I'd love to see them. I think that'd be cool. I, Paul, I will ask, when the hell did you get your book? You and I pre-ordered that book the same night that we podcasted with Heather Wixon, and I've seen that you've gotten your book. And another guy on Twitter just posted something tonight. And me, I'm like, yeah, apparently my copy is still hovering somewhere around New Jersey. Because it knows <laughs> it has to go to Florida. Fair. Fair <laughs> I Yeah, I don't know. I got it like a I, – I posted it maybe a couple days ago, a day or two ago. I, I always get my – like whenever I punch in the uh, – you know, you can search the tracking number. I always get my stuff the day before it tells me it's going to be here. So that should have been Saturday. Yeah. 
didn't get it Saturday. And it's like, well, that's fine. I'll get it on Monday. Monday? Today? Nothing. So... I, I... Yeah, I, I'm so excited one day. I'm going to bring it. Like, next time I see Heather, if I go to a film festival or something, I'm bringing my book with me, and I'm going to ask her to sign it. <laughs> I love it. Or I'll just buy another copy and have her sign that one, because I want to support Heather. Heather's amazing. I, oh, by the way, everyone should buy that book. It's great. Super great. What is the full title, Paul? Uh, the full title... I need to look Let me see up. if it's... I can... Monsters, makeup, and effects, and then there's a subtitle: uh, Conversations with Cinema's Greatest Artists. It's Volume One. There are going to be four planned volumes, and that can be ordered from. Is it? Uh, what is the name of the site? AM Inc. I think. Yes, it's AM Inc. Publishing. So yes, everyone out there, go to aminkpublishing.com and uh, make certain to buy a copy. Yeah, absolutely. Heather Heather is one of the greatest film journalists like working right now. Not not just one of the hardest working, but one of the best. Um, and she never fails to point me in a great direction movie wise. And also just the light she's shining on these uh, like these creatives careers with with these effects books is so important. Um, and I just yeah, I love what she's doing. So, yeah. Very cool. Um, I do want to ask, did, that is a great shot. It's just a hand opening a door, and it's beautiful. Um, did we miss the part where Peter Cushing <laughs> invoked the title? Because I love it when anyone invokes the title. And uh, when yeah, Peter I, Cushing does it, it's amazing. I think we might have. Um, oh, that, that shot right there with the, with the reflection. Does anyone else get Fright Night vibes from that? Totally. 100%. Same with her hand being burned later on. Yeah, like, this movie feels like a huge, huge, huge influence on Fright Night. Like, in terms of some of the iconography and, like, what it's what it's kind of referencing. Because, obviously, it's referencing Hammer movies. And I think this movie is, is definitely looming large over Fright Night, which is one of my favorite films of all time. Now, do either of you know if this was shot fully on stage? Like, I know it was shot at Pinewood. Apparently in the spring of 1971, yeah. was it shot solely on stage? Because there is an early shot that's meant to be an exterior scene. I mean, obviously there are far shots with like Joaquin riding no, they... a carriage down a road. Like that's not going to be on stage. But early on when um, during the opening sequence, when um, the young woman tries to escape the Puritans, like it's obvious that those trees are fake and that they're on stage. It's that great kind of hammer look that uh, Tim Burton kind of referenced in uh, sleepy hollow. You know, I, yeah, I love that, but yeah. I was wondering like, it, was the bulk of it on stage or was it some location shooting? There was location shooting. Um, it was shot partially at black park, um, which several other hammer films were shot at, at that time. Also um, and Pinewood. You said what? Vampire Circus shares the same sets with this film, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 And uh, but yeah, no, you're right, Jinx. There, there was a lot of uh, well, not a lot, but there was there was a handful of location shooting in this film. Not as much as say like, because uh, I think like very rarely did a Hammer film have like a significant amount of location shooting. That wasn't very common. Like. I think out of all the movies we've talked about, maybe like the witches had the most on location shooting. 
Oh, totally. that, that whole town was on location, which was like incredibly rare. But well, the witches didn't really feel like a hammer film to me anyway. That's and part of why. Yeah, that's part of why. Um, but anyway, no, we have to talk about the witches. But um, I did think yeah. it was interesting. I was doing a bit of research. Uh, the American distributor of this film uh, in talking to James Carreras had apparently noted that the word Dracula Dracula was as important a word in the marketing of these films as the word hammer. Uh, and he actually suggested retitling the film Twins of Dracula, which apparently James Carreras, he apparently loved. So uh, I don't know. Part of me, you know, I, I mean, if Countess Dracula can be so far removed from the Dracula legend and still work, I think this could have been called Twins of Dracula. Yeah. Wouldn't have made a damn bit of sense. But uh, yeah that's quite a silhouette um the uh yeah and i i don't know i mean twins of dracula might have bugged me a little bit because then it would have been like probably considered part of the dracula cycle and it that doesn't make a whole lot of sense <laughs> i kind of would you know if they had i wonder if they would have at any point felt obligated to eventually cross the dracula and karnstein movies over because yeah, I would have been Car- okay with the that. The movies have zero continuity, though. Really. I mean, at the end of the day. like they... mean, it's, it's just about as much as, well, no. No, no. The Dracula movies had continuity. Close. There was continuity. It wasn't great, but it was there. <laughs> like, Dra- the way Dracula comes back at the beginning of each one tends to tie into how he died in the last one. Kind of. I mean, when you get from uh, yeah, yeah, taste the blood to scars, then you got to start taking some leaps. Well, it's really when you get to like AD. Because AD 1972 begins with like a climax involving Van Helsing that was never seen in any other movie. Yeah, dying before he appeared in the other movies chronologically. It just it makes no fucking sense. No, yeah, that's what I'm saying is AD is really where the continuity kind of just goes well fuck it <laughs> that's why i think you could i mean i <laughs> i i would have liked to have seen christopher lee's dracula you know run afoul of say count karnstein or if they i wonder if ingrid pitt would have come back as carmilla for christopher lee's dracula could you imagine that i think lineup? i don't think she would have come back i think she was done with this i think she felt burnt by hammer and i think she was kind of over it it's a shame yeah it is because it would have been cool to even see her in a a bit part you know yeah i wonder how much money they tried throwing at her for what would have i mean what was carmilla in this you know that would have been what a day's worth of shooting yeah one day yeah easily and all she had to do is jerk off a candle Easiest paycheck ever. All right, fine, Jimmy. I'll come back. What exactly God is it I'm meant to All right. Doing? What do you want me to do? <laughs> well, there's this candle, and cut to five minutes later, she storms out of the office. He's like, You've got one line, but don't worry, we're going to dub you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's funny, but it's also sad because it's mm-hmm. true. It is sad. sad so this is a scene coming up. So, I mean, 
the crux of this whole thing is the twins switching, right? Do, do you think like when they proposed this original idea, that was, that was the thing they're like, Oh, well they can switch at the end. <laughs> I mean, why not? No, I no. right at the very beginning, I got to imagine they were just focused on the novelty of it. And then they built the rest of the set pieces around them. But I got to imagine that came early on or, or at least the idea of doing like the mirror trick, you know, we could have both of them on either side of a mirror, you know? Yeah. A part of me is surprised they didn't do it earlier. Yeah. Or more often, like that's literally just one thing. And I'm like, come on, just have some fun. Cause it's, it's such a fun premise. Um, you know, and I and it's it's obvious, but it's also like a good time. And I feel like that could have happened at like the 45 minute mark and made for some more maybe like interesting scenarios. Can I just say real quick that one moment that we just passed with Warbeck and um, Madeline Collinson staring at one another, but they're actually staring directly into the camera. Like, obviously, that kind of gives some Jonathan Demi vibes. Uh, in fact, I'd be very curious to know if Jonathan Demi was a Hammer fan. Um, but also, like, seeing Warbeck look directly into the... Goodness. Uh, seeing Warbeck look directly into the camera and his face filling, like, the entire frame. Like, I couldn't help but think, yeah, Fulci. Like, so oh, I, 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 I just wonder, like, I would love a book. I would kill for a book that tracked down all of the references to various Hammer movies that, you know, certain filmmakers, you know, had in their work. Like, if they were fans of this stuff and they brought it into their own work later on. Because I see so many things in these films as we talk about them. So many little moments, flourishes, you know, brushstrokes that you see later on, like, perfected or appropriated in other filmmakers' works, you know, that I didn't necessarily see before these movies. Yeah, I agree. Allie, how early, like, in, so it sounds like you started watching horror movies early. How early were you introduced to Hammer? Oh, Hammer came, like, I mean, the the classic Hammer is, like, I guess, no, it would be more like the classic universe, like, I introduced me at a young age. But Hammer, I think, didn't come until maybe college? Because I feel like I started interning with Rue Morgue, and, like, before an- interning, I was like, I know my shit, y'all can fuck off. Then I get to the morgue and I'm like, oh, so for a dance academy, but maybe for like these horror professionals, I should like bone up on some stuff. So I feel like, yeah, it probably would have been around that time. And then I had access to the room morgue library of movies. I was just like, well, I mean, I'm here every day. I might as well borrow some films to watch at night while I'm doing my homework. That helps. (laughs) Can you tell us what that library is like? Can you describe it? Oh, I can. It is because I had to organize the entire thing. So alphabetical, but it's also just like, it's not fancy. Like you think it's going to be really fancy and have like, you know, big bookshelves of movies with those ladders that you can like swing around a room, but it's just like, that is 100% what I thought it would be. Yeah. It's maybe like a handful of bookshelves with like, I'm assuming just, free stuff that got sent to them over the years. Is it organized? <laughs> I organized the fuck out of it. And they're okay. Like, Was that the most fun you've ever had? Oh just organizing their movies. Literally, like when I signed up to be an intern, they were like, Oh, like, I don't really know what we have for you. We just moved into this new location. Like, 
I don't really know what to get started on. I'm like, well, does anything need like unpacking or organizing? Like, well, I mean, if you want to go down to the storage unit, you can just like unpack and organize all the magazines that are like, you know, from the start to now. And I was like, done and done. And then spent four hours organizing their whole stock room of magazines. And I was like, you know what? I feel like I could just take a bunch. <laughs> but then <laughs> like the awesome. guy who ran at the time, like Rodrigo came down and he was like, um, who's this intern who just organized everything? in like the most pristine way possible. Like everything is here. And if there's boxes that involve like having more magazines, they're all underneath the other magazines. Oh my God. And I'm like, have you never had an, like an assistant who organizes things? What is this? <laughs> Isn't that, yeah, that's what I'm here for. That's fine. Also, what the hell did they not, like, after doing that, did they not offer you like, I don't know, everything? Why, like what? The, they should have offered you like a bigger place in their organization. Keys to the kingdom at that point. Oh, yes. Yeah. For organizing, they should have just made me the editor in chief. Yeah, agreed. Exactly. No, it was, um, I was there for like nine months uh, as I was finishing up my college degree. And it was a ton of fun. Went to a ton of events with them. Got a ton of free swag. Got to meet a lot of really cool people. There's this story I'll tell you about, about how one time me and Joe Dante kissed. What? <laughs> I tell it to everybody. It's like my first date story. I'm super jealous. He I, I feel made like this is some of my something. favorite movies of all time. This is oh, something that we need, like, recorded on a podcast and saved oh, yeah. forever. Because there was a year at, we were uh, doing the Festival of Fear in at Fan Expo, and Joe Dante was there, and so was, like, Ken Forey. And I think that was when Barbara Crampton may have made her first, like, big official comeback to horror movies. Okay. And the, I guess one of the lines of the rumor teachers that had been released had, like, a Gremlins design. <laughs> and I like, was talking to Joe Dante, and I was like, oh, we have a Gremlins design. Did you end up like, getting a shirt? And he's like, what? I never got a shirt. And I was like, oh, that seems like a crazy oversight. You know what? I'll go grab you a T-shirt. <laughs> and then I came back, and he was like, oh, my darling, come here. And just like gave me a little kiss on the lips. And I was like, oh, my God, stop. <laughs> 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 so, like, what are you doing after this? <laughs> wow. I, yeah. That's, huh. He was just such a little, like, he's a little cutie. <laughs> was there any sort of knee-jerk reaction you might have had where you were like, I think I should slap him? No. Kind of because he's Joe Dante. I would have been like, oh my god, Joe Dante, I love you so much. Thank you for, like, completing my childhood. <laughs> I mean, let's go through it. Joe, like, Joe Dante Corona. has made, um, well, Explore. for me, Inter I mean, Joe Dante has made so many classics, but for me, it's all about matinee. Matinee... Uh, is a movie that means like more to me than I could probably express in words. <laughs> Matinee is, is fantastic. As a William Castle fan, I, I adore that movie. Um, yeah. I mean, the Burbs, Gremlins 2. Um, Gremlins small Soldiers, I feel like I need to. Uh, yeah. I love Small Soldiers. I know he's amazing. Shot. I didn't care for it back in the day. I will say. That his episode, uh, the first season episode of Masters of Horror, Homecoming, I think, is just this great Homecoming is really good. Fucking yeah. masterpiece of a short film. Yeah. It and is. it was the first movie that really came out that sort of threw stones at the war uh, before the sort of the gates opened and Hollywood, you know, was releasing like every other month something about the war. But it, it, Dante got there first and did something that was really, I think, just trenchant and just cutting and amazing and uh, i don't i don't think it's nearly enough credit for it well yeah and it transcended i mean and this is no slight to masters of horror but it definitely transcended that show like it it was it it became 
I feel like the most renowned episode by far. Like, because everyone, people talked about that that didn't watch that show. Yeah. And when it came out on DVD, it was the first one that didn't say like Masters of Horror Joe Dante. It just said Homecoming and they released it like a movie. Like right. I have all of those original DVDs and you can actually see the box art change when Homecoming came out. <laughs> it's hilarious. Yeah, it's like they don't match and it fucking drives me nuts that they don't match. But it's because of Homecoming, because of its renown. I loved Homecoming. I also loved uh, Cigarette Burns. And if I'm being honest, I Cigarette hate, Burns is good. Yeah. I hate, I hate, hate, hate to lavish any sort of praise on these pricks. But I will say that I did enjoy Dear Woman quite a bit. But mostly because I thought Brian Ben-Ben was just fucking incredible in it. But otherwise, Yeah, Dear Woman's good. Dear Woman's good. But it's John Landis and Max Landis and fucking hell. Yeah, it's a whole thing. Yeah. You know, we've talked about this before. We can like stuff that bad people yeah. made. It's fine. It's happening. Uh, all right. <laughs> he We're has coming... incredible boots, and it's worth noting. Well, Jimmy a Cox. lot's worth noting. We're we're at the finale, and I just think the lighting. So, does anyone else get? I mean, we talked about Bride, so I guess the answer is yes. But Jack Asher vibes, like Jack Asher, who did all the lighting and cinematography brides and pre-brides for the most part with like the interesting lighting schemes the sort of like giallo-esque kind of odd colors that are non not diegetic necessarily yes and no like there's something about this movie to me that you know when you watch the terrence fisher movies there's something very theatrical about them Mm -hmm. And that lighting certainly plays into it with this one you have the non-diegetic lighting you know it's it's great it doesn't come from a source or anything that is a great reveal, especially with the eye. Well, I, but I mean, down here, like in the in the cavern, like not necessarily throughout the whole film, but like in when you're underground and you're you're in those hallways and you're getting like, like a deeper depth of field. The lighting is more per- like there. There's green. There's reds. Yeah, I guess I could see it. There's just something about this world that feels a bit more lived in to me. Whereas with the the Asher and Fisher stuff, there's something a little hermetically he, sealed about it all. But as they as they descend deeper into this cavern, it becomes more like those old those hammer films of old. Like it feels like they're descending into something from the past, something familiar, and it feels purposeful to me. I can I see that. Okay, I and that decapitation. Oh, boom. Holy yeah. shit. I mean, that's straight from the Vampire Lovers, only just perfected. That was, I just oh. think that's one of the best like, kills in a Hammer film, period. Like, also, top weirdly, 10 Hammer kills. Because it's Peter Cushing, it reminded me a hell of a lot of him and his damn sickle and hat box, and uh, Frankenstein must be destroyed. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's also surprising because she's one of the twins. You don't really expect her to die early in a way. You know, you expect her to be one of the last people killed. That strikes me. And I don't know why. Maybe I can't articulate exactly why. Paul, I understand what you're saying about, like, the Fisher era stuff. But even when the guys run up to the top of the steps and you have, like, the the dry ice affected, like... Uh, fog pouring down the steps. Like, I get it, but at the same time, I look at it and I'm just like, to me, it looks AIP as hell. And a great, yeah, but AIP in and of itself 
was derivative of that old Hammer stuff. That was them trying to take that stuff and make it more modern and digestible for an American audience. Now, Hammer, it's like the snake eating its own tail, right? Now, Hammer is then going, well, that's more popular now, so we got to do that. But that is trying to also be kind of like Hammer. So to me, this is Hammer going back to its roots a little bit. That's like, why it I think feels so far removed end, to me. It is removed, but it's also attempting to reach back into the past and kind of grasp at something that was once there, but that is now sort of gone. Isn't it weird that it's only about what at this point? 13, 14 years in the Hammer's history, yeah. and yet, you know, maybe they did. Well, didn't... Hammer's horror history. Hammer's been around since the freaking 40s. You right. know what I mean? But like, I mean, as far as what we're talking about here, like it. Yeah, it... calm down, Paul. <laughs> but no it does seem like uh, i'm so upset it would be fun to think that you know say a peter sasdy coming in or uh you know a john huff here like coming in and being like well let's look to the hammer films of your less than a decade and a half ago you know like it's right. crazy to think like we're talking about this like to this movie the curse of frankenstein would be like rob zombie's halloween to us right now like that's fucking nuts you know yeah that's true that's true but like so much had changed since then you oh, know yeah. like, like like well and lots changed since rob zombies halloween <laughs> he made halloween too and it's he fantastic. sure did yeah sure did no no comment but i appreciate everyone's love for it i i like that it makes people happy I don't know that you'd... Oh my god, David Berkowitz. So... Allie, that was, you know, this is calling back to our Summer of Sam conversation. There is a guy in those extras that looks maybe as... He looks more like the David Berkowitz. See, it's just Spike Lee couldn't find the one guy who looks. It's because he was here (laughs) and he was a vampire along with Jimmy Fallon. Like, this guy would have been too old. The guy I'm talking about would have been way too young. (laughs) This is a great confrontation between essentially what should be our two villains, but what the movie is obviously trying to make us feel is like a traditional Cushing versus a vampire finale. And I love that the movie does subvert that. Like, this feels like it could be the end of Horror of Dracula. This is when Peter Cushing comes in and saves the day, and uh, the movie has other ideas. Which, come on, Vile, did you really think he wasn't going to move his head when you went for it? Personally, I find this... Um, I'll admit, weirdly gratifying. Because <laughs> I really, I really hate Vile. I really hate him. Like he's I mean, such a good He doesn't have a lot of redeeming qualities. No, and like I was really, really worried that he was gonna live. Like I was terrified that they were going to have Vile kill the Count and like sort of give him that redemptive moment. And when he dies, I was like, oh, good, I can. I can sort of be completely on board with this movie with no sort of asterisks. Do you think it's purposeful that he wasn't able to complete the sign of the cross before he died? I think that so. Seems I, very I, intentional. I, think that's a... I, I think the movie really wanted to make sure he died feeling like he failed to punish him because he because. Right. And I think that like the movie does sort of posit like there is good and evil. There probably is a God, you know, Cushing's punishment, like Cushing's also probably going to hell for the things he did. 
um, even though he was thinking he was a pious man, ultimately that came from a place of wanting to be superior. You know, you don't do the things you, if you're truly pious, you're not going to be judging other people. You know, the, the fact that he was out there trying to like find people and kill them and exerting his authority over them shows that he was not a good man. He was love these he deserves to be punished. I agree. These fades, the the reveal of Karnstein wasting away, I think. Yeah. Is... How good would that have looked on VHS? Oh, my God. Oh. It looks so fucking good on VHS. <laughs> on, on, on HD, it kind of looks like, okay. But, man, that was born for standard definition 4x3 oh, with tracking lines. I'll ask you both, then, just for the hell of it, in the world of this movie, you imagine our two twins arriving at the vile household, right? Yes. If Gustav had been a good man, if he had been welcoming, if he had been caring, if he had basically been the exact opposite of everything that he was, mm-hmm. do you think Frida would have sought out Karnstein? No, I don't think she would have been as interested. I don't know. She seemed pretty determined to like sneak out from the get go. Like she was like, ah, I'm not going to, yeah, I'm going to go have fun. Like I, I think she would have sought out a so, good time no matter what uh, but so i don't he would oh sorry ali go ahead i just don't think he would have been the good time like i think she was looking for danger and if he wasn't who he was i don't think she would have been as interested i get that i wonder so, if yet as a woman if she was already looking to kind of escape her situation then from the moment she got to that house one wonders then like to me, I wonder what was that family like? What were their parents like? You know, or were they anything like vile? You know, um, was that kind of like a repressive household? Um, I don't know. I, I think it'd be curious to know because um, these are the things that I wonder about when I watch movies like this. It's good to wonder. <laughs> now, this movie premiered on October third, nineteen seventy-one. We are very nearly to its 50th anniversary. How crazy is that? Um, and it premiered alongside Hands of the Ripper, which is going to be the subject of our next episode. I'm not sure I need to do a little bit of research. I'll know by the time we do that commentary whether or not this was the A picture or the B picture. But with Cushing, like, it almost had to have been the A picture, right? I would, uh, yeah. I would think this was the A picture because it also it was a vampire film. And yeah. vampire films were always the sort of like bread and butter of Hammer's repertoire. And it is worth noting, uh, I can't, I wonder if this cut exists anywhere, but apparently the movie had to be trimmed by over five minutes to appease the MPAA when it came here to the States in 1972. Five and a half minutes. Well, there's a whole scene with um, one of the daughter, the uh, like halfway through the film where um, Frida tries to seduce Gustav. What? Yeah, that was cut for the U.S. release. Actually, I think it's on the Blu-ray. Yeah, what it should is be on the there. deal with all of these incesty vampires? Yeah, there was a deleted. Yeah, it's on there. It's on the Blu-ray. Family, they just see blood. And they, the, the, I guess for U.S. distribution, it was it had to be cut. Like they were like, well, you can't put that out in the U.S. Also, it where it where it was placed made like very little sense because Gustav would have had to have been back at his house. But it's like when he's going to burn 
like who he thinks is Frida. It's it's a weird. It was like a weird thing that didn't make a ton of sense in the narrative, but it was just like another sexy scene kind of thing. Um, and uh, and it was it was cut, and that's that. I think that's the bulk of that five minutes. Very cool. So overall, now that we're at the end, it sounds like we're all a thumbs up, but not just a thumbs up. It sounds like we're all pretty enthusiastic thumbs up. Is that safe to say? Yes, I would like to say one thing, though. Uh, And this is not just Hammer Films. Films that feature twins who are adults. I always find it to be weird that the trope is that they would dress the same. As a child, I'm like, I get it. You have no control of it. But when you're, like, over the age of 15, are you still actively like, oh, my God, we should just wear the same outfits every single day? I wonder how much of it then might have been, like, because obviously between the two twins, one was dominant. Do you think it was a matter of, like, Frida being like, look, we're dressing this way? Or at least I'm dressing this way, and then, you know. (laughs) And it's clear that, like, they have enough money to buy clothes, but why do they have to buy them in the exact same, like, design and color? Why can't you just, like, zhuzh it up a bit? I mean, those hats (laughs) were pretty damned impressive. Like, oh my god, I actually really loved, I thought the costumes were wonderful. Oh, I think they're beautiful costumes. I mean, they could have had twice as many costumes. Yeah. For sure. It's Maybe that a- was it. Maybe it was a budget issue. They were like, you know what? They're twins. They'll wear the same thing. It's fine. <laughs> we already bought doubles of continuity <laughs> just in case someone spills. So. <laughs> I just oh, always think that's a very weird trope. Like when you're an adult as a twin being like, yes, we should just continue dressing the same and then we'll always be together. <laughs> I always felt that way when I watched G.I. Joe as a kid. You know. So Max Zamont, what's going on there? Wait, because they're all army men? Army men have a uniform. No, they're twins. They're, there were oh, evil twins in a thing. Like so. In general, like, yes, they went to war. They should all wear the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're on your it's side. Good, it's a good point. <laughs> it's called a uniform. No, uh, there were twins in G.I. Joe. I was making a joke. It landed with I, I didn't watch G.I. Joe, so I didn't get the reference. Neither did I, so I'm sorry. That's my bad. I thought we were just saying things like, I wish cops wore different uniforms. I was <laughs> I just... think every I think every cop should just choose what they wear and tell yeah. us they're a cop. You know, it's it's a thing. But no, I, I loved uh, Twins of Evil. I thought it was really fun, kind of in the same line of, like, because I also love Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, and it's it's funny to me that the '70s gets like a bad rap for Hammer, because I think that there was a a bit of creative energy that was infused into it, partially coming from creators that were not sort of entrenched in the Hammer way of life. These uh, they brought in a lot of new people, um, who brought a fresh perspective, but also seemed to have a respect and sense of honor regarding hammer's past um because there's a lot of referential filmmaking there so i think twins of evil stands as one of hammer's better movies overall and i would consider it like when we eventually do our our fabled top 10 i i would consider this i'm not gonna lie i think it's right up there for me too i especially on this rewatch i'd always liked the movie but watching it again it it really kind of blew me away a bit how much I enjoyed it and how, how much just damn fun it is to drink in visually. Like it, it's just, it's everything that I want in a hammer movie. And it kind of 
what's really interesting, it kind of gives light to that idea that, you know, by the time the 70s rolled around, especially at this point, that Hammer was slowly on the decline. They may very well have been, but it, it, the movies didn't suffer for it. Like, I don't think at a budget level it didn't seem, or not that you could tell on screen, because, I mean, you look at Blood from the Mummy's Tomb and this one and what we have coming up with AD 1972 and Hands of the Ripper, like, their movies still looked pretty fucking fantastic. All right. So I think we've just about reached the end of this episode. We somehow made it in before the three-hour mark. I think we should all, I don't know, pat ourselves on the back. Go on. Yeah. That's pretty good. That's pretty good for us. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now, uh, we will be back next week, as we've said, with Hands of the Ripper. Before we do, folks, is there anything you'd like to let our listening audience know about? Anything they can keep an eye out for from you in the future? And what... uh... By the way, if I sound like I'm slurring a little bit, I should note that this is the first episode in over six months where I actually drank alongside watching. I did. I wanted to keep it kind of just, you know, but it's funny. I've become such a lightweight that I found myself slurring in the last half of the episode. And I've I only had like one glass. So, uh, yeah, here at the end, I'm just like, if if, if you could all let them know. (laughs) Uh, what I did not know. Audience I did not even realize. Could uh, keep an eye out for from you in the future. What, what were you? What were you drinking? It was nothing. It was like um, I just mixed up like some Serono and half and half and poured it over the rocks and uh, yeah, just that's it. That's all it was. And uh, yeah, I've I've become a lightweight. Is what I've become. Yeah. So that's okay. Which is fine. But uh, but yeah. So. Anyway, if I can do this without slurring this time, what can folks keep an eye out for from you in the future? Future being this next week, and where can they find you at online? Who? My <laughs> alley. Paul, Paul this week. Paul can go oh, first. Okay. Me. All right. Uh, you can find me at Paul is great two thousand on Twitter no and shame. Instagram. I should say. Uh, and I will, you know, tweet about horror movies and stuff. Um, I should have a new article coming out soon. Uh, it, it, on, uh, I thought it was going to come out this week, but I guess it's coming out probably next week on X the Unknown. And then I'll have uh, another Hammer Factory coming out uh, in October. That I guess I won't say yet because I'll probably have another podcast before then. Um, I have a bunch of podcasts coming along uh there's a new dead ringers that should be out pretty soon um on carnival of souls and messiah of evil oh i love messiah of evil uh and that was a really fun episode and i think it was really pretty cool so i think uh yeah people should definitely be on the lookout for that we had artist trevor henderson on oh i Uh, love trevor yeah, to talk about that. So he he uh, guested on our episode, and he's super cool, uh, and had a lot of really interesting things to say. So be on the the lookout for that. And then, yeah, I don't think I have anything else coming this week. Otherwise, it's like stuff that's down the pipeline. Rock on, Allie. How about you? Uh this Friday whatever month we're in September 17th uh the film that I co-star in and produce with uh legendary Charlie Band comes to Full Moon Features and then on the 27th it comes to Amazon Prime 
That is awesome. And you, uh, I, did we talk about it last week? I don't think we talked about it last week. You got some pretty big news recently. Like you, your, your early October is going to be a tad busy, isn't it? Yes. We are now in pre-production hell to get a feature off the ground in like a month. That's awesome. <laughs> like even like, like tomorrow I have to get up early so that I can like drive to like Hamilton, which for you guys, that's like 45 minutes away. Uh, to go over all of like my prop stuff with my prop guy and like get some special effects stuff made and hopefully it's good and people like it. But this one will be able to like hang out and post a little bit more. Like the short film I did, it was in post for like a week and a half. And I was like, cool, is it done? This has to go out. Otherwise I'm going to miss <laughs> the window for like all the fall film festivals. That um, is awesome. Yeah. Oh, and Congrats also- on that. That's so cool. Yeah. And my short film got accepted into its fourth film festival. I can't say which one, yes. but like it's in the States and then one might be in Portugal. Oh, wow. But it's nice. also playing in October in Salem. That's awesome. The Salem Horror Fest. I'm so excited. I'm so excited for people to see it because um, it's wonderful. I need to send you something, Allie. Um, Somebody did an article recently with Jill Gavargavizian who broke down like basically the path that she had from like going from making a short film to going to making a feature. And it was like it seemed like super cool. And I immediately thought of you when I read it. So please send me it because right now I'm like living in panic attacks where I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I didn't know what I was doing on this short film. Now I'm going into a feature (laughs) and like it's so much more pressure and. I'm excited, but I'm scared. (laughs) I would say just look at what you're able to do with that short film when you said you didn't know anything and just do more of that because yeah yeah you you nailed it the first time around I think you'll be fine this time around too. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think I think follow your your hunches, you know. It's like when you make a movie I don't know. I think I think sometimes the best stuff comes from not knowing and just following what you you know, following what you think should be there. Um, it's when people start like really trying to make the thing they think they're supposed to make or do it a certain way that they sometimes get caught up in their own heads about it, you know? So, but I loved your short. I thought your short was amazing and I'm, I'm excited to see whatever it is you make next. Oh, thank you. I'm excited too. I hope it's like, it's good. And it will be. Failure. You'll kill it. It would be, like, were... be great. <laughs> There were filmmakers on this show before, like the previous iteration of this podcast, who said something that like just the way they broke it down and the fact that I love their films, too, was uh, Benson and Moorhead. And one of the things that they said was just like, look, when you make a film, just know what story you want to tell. And then all that's left after that is just you just make choices, you know, all the mm-hmm. way through. And I was like, I've never heard like the process of filmmaking broken down so simply. But damn it, that makes sense to me. It makes a lot of sense. It does. Like, yeah, yeah. But no, he- I'm sure you're going to kill it. Like, I, I'm really excited for people to see the short. And is there... So now that it's on the festival circuit, we've talked about it a couple of times on this podcast. When can our listeners check it out? Do you I think? don't know. Like, I feel like because of the, like, I feel like I'm maybe allowed to start showing it to more people. But I still don't fully know yet. Because technically it hasn't officially played anywhere just yet. That'll be in, like, October. But... Yeah, I don't know what the, like, protocol is on that. If you're out there and you, like, work for film festivals, like, just <laughs> tell me tell me what the protocol is. <laughs> or better yet, you know what? Hey, listeners, why don't you go to a film festival? Like, do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, no, you guys, go to a film festival. <laughs> it's so easy. Just go to a film festival. Just Gosh. 
I'm so sad I'm not going to Fantastic Fest this year. It makes me sad. Is there? I, 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 you know, I just, with my kids and everything and COVID, I just didn't think it was right. So I'm going to try to go next year. Fantastic Fest this year or no? Yeah. Yeah. There's a physical one. Oh, wow. Yikes. Welcome. Well, hey. In any case, oh, okay. You know what? We have four and a half minutes to three hours. I'm going to wrap this up. We can do it. I just want to get us in under the wire. Folks, both of you, thanks so much for co-hosting as always. And uh, here I go. Big rare up. Thanks to all you listeners out there. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comment section below. Scream at us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Scream Addicts, and I'm at Jinx1981. Until next time, folks, thanks so much, and have a great... Wow, I really brought it in under the wire. You know, we have like three minutes and 40 seconds to just kind of kill. Do you want to run out the clock or shall I just go ahead and cut it here? Oh, man, I'm going to piss you off. You cut out on my end, so I'm like hoping that that was still good on your guys' end. Oh, shit. Paul, did you hear it? Yeah, it sounded like it cut out. Damn it. All right. (laughs) Let me try this again. Ah, It was great, too. God, it it was one of the best. Like, I, I feel bad that you two didn't get to hear it. All right, here it goes again. We'll see if I can uh, see if I can bring the magic again. <clears throat> Damn it, I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> all right, thanks to you both for co-hosting, as always. And thanks to all you listeners out there. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comment section below. Scream at us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Scream Addicts, and I'm at Jinx1981. Until next time, folks, thanks so much, and have a great... Oh, damn it. No, find me on Instagram, too. You can find me on Instagram. Uh, that's J-I-N-X-740-941 if you want to look. You know what? I haven't even posted anything on Instagram recently, but if you want to go back and see, like, I don't know, weird, grainy black and white shots of, like, nature and uh, grilled cheeses I made back during the quarantine, yeah, they're there for you if you want. I don't know. Instagram isn't really my bag. I don't know how you all feel, but nothing. It's no. fine. It's- it was I, 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 I'm not hating Instagram. I, I don't do a ton on it and like, I don't, you know, but I, it, it, it's sort of like, I get it. It seems positive. It seems like a positive place. It is way more positive than Twitter. I will say that. Especially because you can just scroll through and look at photos. You don't have to read anybody's captions. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. And like comments aren't as cutting, you know, I don't know. I will hmm. say, I will say this about Instagram. I love scrolling through and liking stuff and looking at stories i just don't like posting all that much i don't know that's fair you can do I'm that just, i'm more of an instagram voyeur i like it i'm just gonna leave that there okay let's try this one more damn time <clears throat> <laughs> and as always thanks to you both for co-hosting and thanks to all you listeners out there as always please make certain to like subscribe share use the comment section below scream at us on facebook and twitter that is at scream addicts and i'm at jinx1981 you can also find me on instagram that is all right, I already mentioned it, but it's it's at Jinx740941. Until next time, folks, thanks so much, and have a great weekend. And we brought it in with over a minute to spare. Proud of us. <laughs>